0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats and join the conversation there. We invite you. We implore you. Subscribe to our feed. New episodes coming right to you through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Plus, you can go right to NationalReview.com and click on Podcast. You'll find us... Political Beats, and all the other fine national review podcasts waiting for you right there. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Uh, Well, Scott,
1: you know, there's been a lot of talk about this podcast. This podcast is not a rebel podcast. This podcast is Political Beats.
0: See, I thought it would have gone with a Charles Manson sort of joke, you know this podcast Uh-oh. was stolen by charles
1: but no no, no you, you charles it. manson stole this song from from us and now we're stealing it back <laughs> something like that hey, hey am i bugging you do i bug you <laughs> all right scott play the blues
0: at esoteric cd is where to find jeff on twitter and our guest for this episode uh we uh, we here at uh, jeff and i the brain trust um have, have randomly chose the uh, the number of 50 episodes as to when we can start inviting our our friends back to do additional episodes. And so this, in fact, episode 51 is our first episode with a repeat guest. You might remember him from such fine Political Beats episodes as Oasis, a contributor. It's contributed to National Review Online and Fox News and the New York Post. You can find him on Twitter at Red Steez. He is Stephen Miller. Stephen, welcome back to Political Beats.
2: Yeah, I th- I think it's great that I figured out how, what uh, how can we do an even less cooler band <laughs> on my on my second go around. So we'll
0: we'll we'll, we'll just see how that goes. Um, <coughs> the yeah uh, we, uh, we found out last time. We'll ask Stephen to tell us a little bit again. Who you are? What you do? How you got involved? Stephen?
2: Yeah, I uh, was a contributor for National Review for a while and. Um, stumbled into Heat Street, and then for some reason, the, the Brain Trusted Fox I hired me to do some commentary them, and that I do some stuff for New York Post, but I'm, I'm kind of uh, working on some other projects at the moment that I'm not quite ready to announce. Um, so I'm not doing a whole lot of contributing at, at the moment. I'm just, I'm just listening to a lot of music and writing a lot of notes about preparing for my appearance on this podcast here
1: nine pages of notes we might point out this is the yeah. most prepared guest we've ever had and they were all really good ones actually
2: Yeah, but as a repeat guest you know what you're getting into this time like oh <laughs> god we did what three hours last time and that was just on Oasis yeah. and so this this time I'm you know I'm in a vacuum sealed suit I have my catheter in um, <laughs> I'm ready <laughs> I'm, I'm I've, you know I'm I'm ready to go here so I know what we're getting into and I have like three cups of tea in front of me and I'm you know uh, That's ready mandatory. to go.
0: Yep. I was going to say, Jeff. I think our our most prepared guest is, has to be either Stephen this time or or Jake Cost for the Kinks, who also forwarded to us, I believe, like eight pages worth of notes on Kinks uh, every single Kinks album. So uh, it, it's one of those two in terms of most fu- prepared guest.
1: That,
2: that feels funny. like He's
0: overkill.
1: Like, you know how I prepare for this show? I just literally get a big pile of drugs and I spread it out in front of me,
0: <laughs> and I, we just roll. And so you know. Uh. Alright, so the band for this episode, as you might already know if you've clicked on play, which you have, is a tiny uh, tiny little band that had a little success, some experimentation in the 90s, and, uh, and then got big again. It's a little band called U2. U2 around since 1980, my goodness, that's almost 40 years of the same four guys in one band. And uh, we turn the floor back over to uh, Stephen to tell us, a bit about how he got into U2, why you like this band, and why anybody else should care <laughs> about the music of U2. Yeah, I thought, uh, what the, the intriguing thing about doing this, like, just
2: when I was flirting with Jeff about, you know, possibly doing another one, I was thinking, you know, I could do the National, or, you know, we could do Wilco, although I think you had somebody do Wilco, <laughs> yes. but I could do, like, these bands that, you know, I actually genuinely love, and uh, I, I genuinely uh love U2, but it's the funniest thing about who they are now is everybody listens to them but everybody also says they hate them <laughs> and um, I think that that's an interesting paradox about where they are now they're, they're just it's, they're at the point now where they're all kind of in their late 50s I think and it's just kind of become so uncool and I was telling Jeff that I, I think that there's interest in studying them kind of as a I don't want to say a relic but of just a time capsule of like the 80s and somewhat of the 90s were like musically and so, just this fascination of being the guy who's going to take the hit and do the band again—that nobody seems to like, but everybody <laughs> seems to listen to—and uh, but to—and to, I have so, I have some kind of like fascinating stories with them. So, how I came into them—I was uh, a child of the '80s, um, but I never listened to you 2 in the '80s. They were always kind of my these bands jumbled in with my brother's cassettes, so I they were always kind of like. I'd always get them confused with Fleetwood Mac just from the album covers and stuff, <laughs> so I never, I never listened to them like throughout the '80s. And um, the like the earliest kind of memory I have of being caught on them was "Mysterious Ways" came on uh, MTV in mm-hmm. like 1990 or 91. It was like the first single off Octoon Baby. and that was everywhere. Like that song was on MTV every five minutes, basically. <laughs> You could. And, uh, I still kind of avoided it. I kind of, I was just like, eh, you know, I don't know who these guys are. I just genuinely had no clue. And, uh, one night I was doing homework and I had my radio on and, um, they were doing a radio giveaway, uh, for tickets to a tour called zoo TV. I think I was 12 or 13 years old at the time. And, um, I was, I think I was in eighth grade. And, um, I was just doing homework, and then they said, you know, and I think they even played Mysterious Ways was the song. (laughs) And uh, this is when I lived in Denver, so it was a Denver radio station. It's like, you know, eighth call or whatever, you win two tickets to Zoo TV. And this was a week away from the show. The show was on October 21st, and this was, I think, a week and a half before the show. And so I'm just kind of doing Mysterious Ways or whatever. So I just pick up the phone, and I'm dialing and dialing, and I get through. And so I end up winning <laughs> two tickets to this thing called Zoo TV, which I had no real idea what it was <laughs> at the time. And, uh, so I went on, I, I told my brother that it's was going and he got instantly pissed off at me. Because he's, my brother was a big U2 fan throughout the 80s. He's five years older than me. Mm-hmm. So he was a big U2 fan throughout the 80s. And of course, I win two tickets to Zoo TV, and he, he knows that I don't know anything about U2. And, uh, the, uh, the other funny thing is uh, some, one of my English teachers mentioned that she was, a, she was a really young English teacher, but she mentioned in class that she's a fan, whatever. And like on the week before, I, I mentioned I got tickets to the show and she mentioned that she had just broken up with her boyfriend <laughs> and she was upset because his tickets were, I guess, right at the front. And now she said she had to go get ones in the back. But she asked did to,
1: you try to hook
2: up no, with no, no. your English teacher? No. <laughs> my English teacher actually offered to chaperone me to the show. Um, <laughs> I, I, And at the time, I, I, was, I was totally, she's like, well, if you need an adult or something to, you know, do this, because um, what I learned is my tickets were in the lower bowl, um, just off to like the right side. And this was at Mile High Stadium. Anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't remember Zoo TV, is it was an outdoor kind of extravaganza. And so my tickets were in the lower bowl. So really decent seats, whatever. And so... I didn't really have a ton of friends who knew who U2 was at the time, so it wasn't going to be so I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have a girl that I had a crush on that I could say, hey, hey, you know. So I politely declined my English teacher. Um, I didn't think it was weird. I generally thought she I didn't think that she was putting a move. I generally thought it was just, <laughs> like, hey, well, if you need an adult, you know. So my brother asked me if if uh if I had found anyone to go like later in the week, and I was like, no. And he's like, well, I'll go. And so I just said, okay, like, yeah, I'll go. My brother will take me. And he was jonesed about that. And so we go to Zoo TV and I remember walking down into the arena and it was just kind of the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen in my life. You see the stage with just these TV monitors and these cranes with uh, cars hanging off of them. And uh, you guys will appreciate this. There were a couple of opening bands one was public enemy huh. who i was familiar with we can't actually we got to the uh, arena or the stadium just as public enemy was kind of finishing up and then the other band was a little known band called the sugar cubes huh. who i had no idea who the sugar cubes were either and anyone who knows the sugar cubes know that the lead singer of that was bjork mm-hmm. bjork yeah so this was kind of a and again my I had no clue, so my brother's kind of telling me everything he kind of knew everything about Zook TV. <laughs> like he's seen footage and he 's like okay you're going to see the the singer's name is Bono, and he 's going to come up from the stage over there and you're going to you know and he so he clearly you know this was more of a thing for him than it was for me, but that 's exactly what happened so uh the you know the monitors start flickering, the lights go on, whatever like this, and then uh Bono comes up from the stage with his fingers you know doing the victory symbol. Um, and they cut right into Zoo Station. And it's just this spectacle of just, it's blitzing your eyes, it's blitzing your ears. And for like a 12-year-old kid, I'd never, this was actually my very first concert of my life. (laughs) i had never gone to a show before this. So pretty, to be able to win tickets off the radio and then to go to the spectacle, and I think I ended up sitting down for half of the show (laughs) because I was tired and I kind of, (laughs) you know, I didn't really know some of the songs. I knew some of them, but not all of them it's the one show I wish I could go back in time and revisit now you know so the show comes and goes and I was kind of like um wow that was that was extraordinary to see that and I immediately then go a few months and I pick up Octune Baby and everybody in their life has that one album and Octune Baby uh became that album for me in 92 or 93 and uh, no matter how big of kind of a music snob I get um, or how far away I kind of get from that band um, or how far they get into what I will we'll get into is the Shibano era. Um, I'll, I'll always go back kind of to that album. And uh, the thing that intrigues me about them as a band is for at least 30 years, I'll say the 80s, the 90s, and then into the early 2000s. This was a band that just uh, would pick up fans so like they, they pick up someone like me who I didn't listen to them through the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a teenager. And the one thing I noticed as I've gone to, and I've seen them now, I think, live four or five times. Um, I, I, I saw them at Zoo TV. I saw the Pop Mart tour. Um, that one, I, I took my girlfriend to that tour. Um, I saw the Elevation tour at the last minute. Um, I scalped a ticket and just went and saw. I got a complete cruddy seat behind the stage. But um, I was like, eh, I'm going to go to the show. Uh, I took a friend to see the Vertigo tour, and it got to be, and then my last, the last time I saw him was just this recently, the Joshua Tree tour, because mm-hmm. I thought that was a novel thing that they were doing. It's like, well, let's go see them do Joshua Tree. And uh, it, it was one of those things where the last three or four times I saw him, I was always taking someone to see them, because seeing you 2 live was kind of like going to church <laughs> uh, for a lot of people. Um, where the streets have no name as a live song is still, I think, the best song I've ever seen performed live. hmm Um, just when you see 60,000 people jumping up and down to that, it's extraordinary. And um, I was always amazed that every time I go to these shows, you would see, you know, the boomers, (laughs) you would see guys who like me, I'd be in my teens or in the, then in my twenties and then into my thirties, but I would still see teenagers there and I would still see, you know, older people there and then everybody in between. And they had this uncanny ability to just pick up fans because they experimented with so many genres that they were able to do that. And I think until very recently, maybe their last two albums, I think that that was definitely true through the 80s and then, of course, in the 90s. And then even when they kind of uh, stripped everything back in 2001, they brought a lot of people back to them who didn't really understand the, uh, the, the Pop Mart stuff that they were doing. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my introduction. And, and basically through the nineties, I wasn't a huge fan of the Zoropa era. I wasn't a huge fan of the pop art. So I spent that good chunk retconning them. So going back and listening to boy and listening to war. And then of course the Joshua tree and, um, and we'll obviously get into all those and don't forget all fire. And I found myself still catching on to what they did as Octune baby. Like, uh, I, I was just like this, these are all great albums that, you know, and it's exciting when you go back and you retcon groups like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have the ability to, or, or you have the patience to do it. And they have a huge catalog to do that. Um, So yeah, I was I was an Octoon, uh, Octoon Baby era uh, U2 fan. So I, was, I, be- I just became hooked on them. And especially that album, which I know we're going to go into later, and I'll talk more about what that means to me and stuff like that. But um, yeah, that was my kind of serendipitous story about how I became a U2
1: fan, almost completely on accident and just good timing. I don't even remember how I became a YouTube fan. I mean, it it was just one of those things for me. We are the same age, roughly. Uh, Growing up in the 80s, you knew this band. You knew all the songs. You knew With or Without You was playing on the bus when you get to school practically every morning, all right, with the wacky morning zoo DJ saying, like, hey, we're going to do our funny phone call next, but here's Bono. And then With or Without You comes on. That's, like, literally, like, one of the memories that I have of being seven years old and going to, like, first grade I mean this stuff was just so ever present you could not escape it you could not escape the Joshua Tree even the earlier stuff they would play and you know you wouldn't recognize the song I mean, if Pride in the Name of Love came on or I Will Follow came on but you could tell it was u two's sound and so like Everybody was sort of a fan. Stephen, of course, the way he opened it is exactly how I remember us talking about it too. He's like, "Yeah, everybody claims they hate this band, but everybody <laughs> listens to them, you know, because um, they do." And, and the thing is, is that they're just always there. They're they've become ubiquitous. And the thing about their ubiquity, you know, for me, I guess, you know, the era that I got into was Joshua Tree. That's when I first heard about them, and then really obviously Octoon Baby as well, because that's that's my time. You know, I was, you know, I was. At ten, eleven years old, when Octune Baby came out, and you know, again, you couldn't avoid it. Um, but what actually got me to really appreciate you two, who I've never seen live, and so this is strictly a CD-based experience for me, is going back and realizing that they really were a lot of different bands, and yet always the same band. And I don't just mean in the sense that they've always had the same four guys in the band, which is true, and that's actually you know, you know, a, a pretty uh, a pretty good selling point for a group. A lot of groups have turnover. The same four guys, I think, you know, Stephen, when we were doing our show notes, he pointed out, these guys were essentially part of a street gang mm-hmm. in Dublin, Ireland, so like they've always been members of the same gang, even to the present day, yeah. um, And uh, but even, it's not just the fact that they have the same personnel, but that there's a continuity and that everything that U2 does sounds like U2, and yet they played in so many different major eras. It For a lot of people who have never heard, for example, U2's first album, which we'll talk to, it's it's a shock to, to, to realize two things. A, this is a, a band that sounded like what you think of as classic U2 right from the jump. Their first album sounds like, well, yep, there's the Edge doing his Edge thing. There's Bono doing his Bono thing. And yet they also are very clearly, you realize... Oh crap this is a post-punk band Mm -hmm. this is like this is echo and the bunny man this is joy division and new order this is this is part of a movement that they they grew so far beyond in their later years that it's almost impossible to remember that they were actually just part of that group that part of that clutch of bands that emerged from you know the ashes of the punk movement and you know came up with these sort of more murky and dreamy sonic textures And then, of course, they were the ones that became the big megastars. Um, But not only that, then all the collaborations with Eno, the dreamy music from the Unforgettable Fire era, then into megastardom with uh, Joshua Tree, the weird, goofy Americana turn on Rattle and Hum, the 90s experimentation. All that time, they remained hugely popular. As Stephen says, they kept picking up fans. It is actually an accomplishment that, Despite how massive a band this is, you know, because everybody pretends to, to hate them nowadays, it gets underrated. Mm-hmm. The longevity, the long period of time with which they were putting out great material. I mean, I would say from 1980 all the way up to like 2000 or so. All right, that's 20 years. Of really solid stuff, including stuff that was dismissed at the time, or I think very underrated at the time, that I will go back to defend. I know you don't like pop, but I'm going to defend pop for crying out loud. Uh, That's where U2 deserves respect. And it's easy to laugh at Bono as this, you know, like the guy has a Jesus complex that is legendary. He thinks he's going to save the world with his music. Um, And, you know, he goes around being a do gooder and, like, you know, interviewing the pope and meeting with presidents and and, you know i think didn't he single-handedly cure starvation in africa i seem to recall that happening at one point in the 80s three times yes three three times exactly every time there's been a famine in the third world bono has swooped down to rescue it it's just you know the the guy the guy's you know he's a superhero in, in tights and a cape so it's easy to laugh at that aspect of the band it's easy to sort of dismiss them as old fogies now it's it's the quintessential version of dad rock now uh but it's also really easy to forget just how innovative just how bracing they were not only in their youth but you know for a very long time throughout the bulk of their career
2: i think what's amazing is that they are the one band to kind of emerge out of the '80s, and you—I mean—you can still make the argument they're the most. I won't say like the biggest or the best band on the earth today, but they're certainly the most well-known. Um, and
1: when well, look, well, what, what are what other rock bands are like really big well, arena-selling propositions? It was them or, and the Foo I mean, Fighters, you know. I mean, that's yeah, it.
2: that's that's exactly right. And so when you look at the '80s as a whole, and you look at it's what you talked about—this emergence, like of all the bands in the '80s that these guys were the ones to emerge from it so it's like i mean you had in excess and you had the smiths and the cure and i know the cure is still out there you know playing hot topics or something but um as far as commercial success you know you i think there's maybe what two artists from the 80s that are still arena selling it's maybe u2 and madonna maybe um and that's that that to me has to be studied like it's kind of weird as to how why that is um You know, like I said, yeah, there's all of all the bands where Jeff you talk about, they were jumbled into. So you had like Tears for Fears and um, Simple Minds, you could argue, all these Mm -hmm. kinds of 80s bands that just all fell by the wayside. And I think part of it is who they were prior to the band and then the decisions they made personally while in the band. They kind of, you know, they joined kooky religious cults and, you know, swore off the lifestyle. And that has contributed a lot to their success. But on the other hand, but Bono's been married to the same girl from bef- before he was in U2. He basically joined U2 to, to impress this girl who he's been married to for you know 35 years. And so t- they kind of are the anti-rock band of, of all of that. And that's, that's caused friction. Um, Adam Clayton kind of wanted to go and be in the traditional you know, girls and drugs style group. And that's caused friction over the years and of course in the 90s he's the guy dating the supermodel and you know going to rehab all the rest of them are you know reading scripture (laughs) and so they're worth studying in that sense of how how was this how were these guys who were you know friends in you know they met in like 1976 1977 and they all came together in a kid's kitchen where only one of them was a trained musician and that was the drummer (laughs) Um, the rest of them didn't really know what they were doing. Um, you had uh, Dave Evans and Dick Evans, who Dave Evans is the Edge, and Dick Evans is his brother. Um, they, you know, they had built guitars and they had kind of a cr- cruddy guitar, which he could sort of play. But the Edge didn't know how to read music; he just he played tabs basically. Um, Bono couldn't sing at all; didn't had no vocal training, despite his father. Um, and so to have this this picture where you have just these four kids doing what, you know, kids do every, every kid is done, you know, get in the kitchen and just play. Hey, we'll rock a wall band. And, uh, but how many of them, what are the odds that were stacked against them going on to become what they have become? Um, and that's good and bad, but it's again, to see that these four kids, these four kind of punks from Dublin, uh, were the ones to emerge out of that decade, with so much commercial success to where they're really the only ones still enjoying it. i th- I think it's you don't have to love them, but you have to really respect that. And you also kind of have to like look back and wonder what happened to the rest of the groups um, <laughs> that they kind of just tossed aside. And Jeff, you kind of hit on it. they for for good or bad, they always were kind of reinventing what they were doing. And so they were always kind of staying, trying to stay fresh at least. Um, and then I think now they're just at that age where they, I think they realize they can't do that anymore. Um, I, I don't think you're going to see, you know, you, you two release an experimental new metal album. Um, <laughs> so I think that they've at least settled into their age and they kind of realize, you know, that they're they're, they're coming to the end of it. Um but,
1: I, I've heard enough of their experiments with rap rock to know that they should not try that. Right, that right, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: right. They did. They did have a
2: track with Leaky Lee on their uh, on one of their last albums. But again, I, I don't know how much of that is younger artists wanting to work with them, or you know, vice versa. But again, like I like I said earlier, they they are a time capsule to me that needs to be studied. Um, Musically and just, I, I joke to Jeff, just put them in a museum right now. Just put them in a glass <laughs> and just leave them there. And, you know, just put them there and like, like that way that you know, Bono can't go out and make any more dad jokes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how much do we want to? How much more do we want to talk about? Perhaps the the formation and the, and the lead up to their first album, uh which is Boy in in nineteen eighty. We we talked a bit about. Where they came from, yeah, yeah. It's,
2: it's. Int- I mean, they came from a group. They there was two kind of interesting things about this, and th- this just came about when I was studying, you know, when I was reading about them in their early beginnings. And then I actually had written a rough draft. Wait, this was a, this was a while ago, uh, of a screenplay based on who they were as a beginning, because it is kind of really fascinating. There's kind of like a train spotting aspect to them. Um, they basically there was about six or seven of them that were friends and they were called a they were in a gang that they created called Lipton Village. And <laughs> they were literally hooligans. <laughs> yeah no they were they were hooligans but they weren't like tr- you know they weren't like tr- like troublemakers. It was more just kind of a clubhouse and um and so people always ask where, you know, Bono gave himself the name to get in the band and stuff like that. And that wasn't true. All of their nicknames came from this group in Lipton Village. So um in this group, you had Paul Houston, who was Bono. You had, like I said, Dick and Dave Evans were the Edge, and then Dick is Edge's brother. Um, you had a guy named uh, Derek Rowan, who, um, and then you also had a guy named Fiona uh, Hanvey, who went on to become Gavin Friday in the Virgin Prunes. And so you had the Virgin Prunes doing their thing, going off and doing their thing, which was kind of art, experimental, theater, stuff like that. And then, um, so they all said, "Well, we want to form a band." And so you had Bono and uh, they, you had Bono and the Edge, and then they they picked up Larry they picked up uh, Larry Mullen, who kind of was the first guy to to push it. He's like, "I want to be in a band." He put a thing on their note at school that said, "Hey, anybody want to join? Come to my kitchen." Um, but they were in this kind of just a normal, like just Jeff said, a normal hooligan gang, and they gave themselves nicknames. So Bono became—he was originally called Bono Vox from a hearing aid store, and so he just dropped in his name was Bono, and that's what he's gone by like his whole life. People wonder about that, but I guess even his wife calls him Bono, which is something <laughs> you think he probably demands. You know, she probably is kind of like Paul. I'm sick of your. Shit. I am not Paul. I am Bono. You know, do the do the. Do the dishes, Bono. Do, do you think you know? Dave,
1: Everges, uh, Dave Evans' Dave Evans's wife calls him the Edge? Maybe I, I
2: mean, would I hope would, so, right? Maybe. Edge, the Edge. Take the garbage out, the
3: Edge. <laughs> you,
2: know, you can just tell, like, when they get frustrated in their marriages. Um, but again, this is this goes back to um, a lot of obviously you had, in, in especially in the UK and especially in, in uh, Ireland, you had these kind of you know hooligan youth gangs all over the place. And again, to have four of them you know, go off and form this band and, uh, they get recognized basically through talent contests, which is uh, a guy named Paul McGinnis, who I, I don't know if he's still their manager. He is still their manager. Um, but he's, he's kind of the guy who picked them up and guided them and they were doing contests. An interesting thing. Um, you know, I could go into this whole thing for about an hour, but, um, there was a film released last year called Sing street. Yes. yes. It was directed by the guy who did about a boy. Right. And you're watching this film. And for anyone who's kind of familiar with their history, like I was, I'm watching this film and I'm looking at the actors and the, like the guitarist is weird, has a weird curly fro and glasses. And then the lead has that kind of black mullet. And I'm kind of like, this is really freaking familiar to me. (laughs) And they have scenes in Sing Street where they're playing in the kitchen. And then of course, the whole joke in Sing Street is they they start looking at videos of music and then they start emulating who they see. So, like one minute you'll see Mick Jagger and then it cuts to a scene and all the kids are dressed like Mick Jagger walking down the street. And the, the the lead kid in it wants to get in the band to impress a girl that he thinks is a model. So the idea is is they want to create a band so he can do a video that he can put her in the video. And you see them as like the as the movie goes through and it's kind of a movie about the love the old seventies eighties love new wave with all original music and I'm watching this movie halfway through and I didn't really know this and I'm watching it I'm like this is this is a this is the damn script I was writing um (laughs) I was kidding but I was like this is a U2 origin story like everything in it um other than the aspect of the big brother who gives his kid records which is kind of one of the ending things but this idea that they want to go to London to you know strike it rich and everything And then, of course, it comes to find out when I go home and I check the credits, uh, Bono and the Edge wrote all the songs for the movie Hmm. and were script consultants on the film. I did Um, not know that. Are you serious? So there it was. Sing Street is basically it's not 100 percent like a YouTube biopic, but the (laughs) story that you see in the film um, about how they form a band and setting
1: and everything like that is pretty much exactly how this band was formed. Um, wow. As far, as far as Bono and the Edge theatrical collaborations go, that's a heck of a lot better than Spider-Man Turn Out the Dark. Yeah, like right. <laughs> right. And that's what wow. I
2: said. I, I said Sing Street is, is going to be made into a play. It's it's tailor-made to, for that to happen. Um, but yeah, you had a lot of these you had four of these kids going to form you too. You had like three or four of them went to the Virgin Prunes. Dick Evans, Edge's brother, went into the Virgin Prunes. And actually, it's funny, as, as you two kind of took off, Gavin Friday kind of became like the Jarvis Cocker too cool uh, for Bono and those guys. He was like, you're just you're chasing commercial success. You're not actually creating real art, you know? And so that's kind of who Gavin Friday was. But they're still friends. And um, another main member of this group is a guy named, they called him Googie or Guji. And um, he's just gone on to be an artist. He hasn't really been a musician, but there were so many things that came out of just this one little, uh, these, these street gangs and their first, their first, uh, their first group was called the hype, um, which, um, they had to rechange, I think, because of David Bowie. Ironically, right? David um, Bowie's
1: original early band was called The Hype,
2: right? So they they had to change that, and that's actually how I think they just they just settled on U two. And I think that McGuinness is the one who originally just gave them the name, um, and they just like were like, yeah, whatever. And so, and then the rest was kind of history. McGuinness starts shopping their demo over London and um, over the place, and uh, he kind of agrees to manage them. And again, for. A band that uh, just started out so rough and, and like you said about post-punk to see where they, to go on and be the most commercially successful band maybe in history um, it's, it's again kind of one of the interesting things about wanting to do this show it's not, it's trying to guide, kind of get people to remember, you know, that these, these guys weren't always like Jeff said, superheroes trying to save the world, they, they were punks like the rest of us at one time
1: And the funny thing about it, though, is that, okay, you know, that takes us to, to U2's first album. That takes us to Boy. Now, you, you listen to that first album, and I remember when I, you know, I, I, you know, I had already owned The Joshua Tree. I'd owned Rattle and Hum. I'd owned, I think, Unforgettable Fire and Octoon Baby and Zeropa and all that stuff that I had heard when I was growing up. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I might as well, you know, explore this band's origin story. So what did I do, I went out and I got their first album, 1980, Boy and the thing that f- flattened me about this record is that i expected it to be something primitive to be kind of like wow well, this is this really isn't all you know they don't have their act together it's all kind of like still very inchoate and very formative no no the funny thing about it is that everything that made u2 famous everything yes still here in u2 to this day for the most part it was all there on that first record it wasn't necessarily quite there on the, like their original pre-boy ep uh like the u2 the three ep and then they had a couple nine album singles there but even there like the concepts of the songwriting were there but they didn't have the sound and i think that the, the, the sound is is what made them make you know these these irish hooligans into u2 and i don't know whether we credit that fully to the band or we credit that to the producer who they were just supernaturally lucky to be matched up with it's a guy named steve Lillywhite who was one of the great rock producers in history you know he he's done so many great he he produced a lot of these classic xtc albums Mm -hmm. from that same era he he produced um uh what is it i'm thinking of um uh, what was uh, oh, Peter Gabriel's third album, yeah. which is, you know, sort of Talking a landmark, Morrissey, the psychedelic furs. He's just a land, a landmark producer involved. It has a hand in so much of the great music of the British, the UK era, uh, the post-punk era. And I don't know if it's Lily White, you know, like giving edge an effects pedal and saying here, you know what? Use this. It's going to make you sound a lot cooler <laughs> than you do already or they already had that idea they might have because 11 o'clock TikTok was the the, the last single they released before boy and it does kind of sound like U two as we know them today but on boy that first album um i don't you know i'm i'm not going to start actually i want to give this to scott to start first because you know he hasn't talked too much i think boy could be one of the best albums of their entire career <laughs> and it's their first album
0: I'll mention just very quickly. I haven't talked a whole lot because my my U two uh, devotion doesn't go quite as as far as, as as the two of you. In that, I well J- Jeff and I are essentially the same age, so I have very much the same memories of being inundated with Joshua Tree uh, music around that time. And I, I I didn't really I didn't really love it. Uh, I did love Octum Baby, which we'll get to a little bit later. And even after that, uh, you know, we're pop and and. Uh, And Zerupper didn't get quite the radio play some of the big 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 hits did when I would hear those singles I would think man that that's good and going back through their catalog piece by piece as I did for this episode That's kind of how I see a lot. I mean a lot of their albums. There's experiments that don't work There's things that aren't quite there. There's some sketches of things that would be successful on future albums But there always are I mean depending on the album right at least a couple of, of moments a couple of songs which are really pitch perfect. I mean, from start to finish, uh, every member of the band contributes and, and they're really are there on, on each and every album. Uh, boy, I, I don't like uh boy as much as Jeff does in terms of saying it's, uh, uh, perhaps you know one of their top four or five albums, but it's good and it it's good for a debut from a guy, a bunch of guys who I don't think were even twenty years old yet when this album came out. Um, y- you don't have some of the more religious themes that you'd have immediately following this at October. You don't have the political themes that you would have on the uh, the album after that in War. What you have is a uh, you know thematically kind of what you would expect from a bunch of eighteen, nineteen, and, and nearly twenty-year-old you know boys essentially right yep. um i um you know the, i will follow is just a great way of introduction to the band and you hear that lily white production right from the start that kind of uh, giving all that instrumentation space that kind of a cavernous sound those guitars the the edge guitar, guitar just rattles around a rumbling bass sound of i will follow and that, and that, you know that's one of their signature songs the first song it's the, the xylophone album. man that, that whoever playing that xylophone in the background or
1: glockenspiel yeah. whatever it is man uh, know, i that, think it was played that, by that lily is, white there you go that's too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, And I actually like there's a there's a stretch toward the middle of the album that I like probably best. That's uh, out of control, which uh, I mean, the song is I don't you can't write a song called out of control and have to be some, you know, subdued, uh, you know, moody piece. Uh, It's an up tempo kind of uh, maybe the most pure punk song here on a a post-punk kind of album. Uh, Stories for Boys probably is my favorite song on the album and this was this is a, a, a redo right uh, right, guys you know more YouTube yeah yeah I, it was is... it was
1: actually one of the earlier singles yeah. and then they re- in fact yeah, so was Out of Control Out of Control and Stories for Boys were both on that first EP and then they re-recorded them and the re-recordings are just so much better I mean yeah. you know the, the effects on Edge's guitar are just you know it's so much more assured sounding
0: yeah, I think Stories for Boys is the best sounding song on this album from all the band members you know, that, that Edge kind of that spy movie riff he, he peels off Larry Mullen's big booming hits uh, and then Clayton's really sharp bass work very uh, throwing in some figures we just did an episode recently you know talk about Peter Hook how he added some things to that to his band that's, that's the way Adam Clayton adds some texture to a song like stories for boys <laughs> Like a Day Without Me as well, a song uh, referencing suicide. there would be a few in the band's career, and this is one where, again, you hear, even at a very young age, the way the Edge can play with his guitar. There are two different, you know, guitar tracks, one very kind of wobbly, and another kind of a piercing cry of the edge guitar which would be i guess somewhat of a signature sound for some of these first couple of albums
1: um i mean you talk about suicide
0: i'm pretty sure that song is
1: about ian curtis from yeah. joy division yes. yeah so which I is mean, a
0: very big influence I, I think this is you know yes it's U two, and, and yes it sounds like U two, but i think a lot of their influences are, are pretty darn apparent uh, on boy the way they would perhaps not be uh later on
1: I mean, they even got Martin Hannett, who was uh, you know Joy Division's producer, to do their uh, eleven o'clock TikTok single, which is right before this album. Apparently, I had such a bad experience with them, though, that they were like, "No, no, 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 we can't, we can't work with you." And, and their complaint, which I find hilarious in retrospect, their complaint is that Hannett was trying to change their sound to make it sound too much like a you know a typical Martin Hannett production. <laughs> but then, boy, comes out and it everything sounds exactly like 11 (laughs) o'clock TikTok. So I'm like, well, uh, yeah, that was the sound you were looking for. Was it not? I don't know. It must've just been a personality clash. Boy
2: is basically a joy division album. Um, Obviously, you, you know, the, the vocals couldn't be more different, but, uh, Larry, um, Mullen's drums are recorded in a stairwell, mm-hmm. you know, to get that echoey kind of sound behind them, which, you know, they carried with them for two more albums. But then when Eno came in, he's like, no, nope, get you in the studio. We're done with this. You, know, you can come in from the cold. Come on, join the band. Um, the, the most amazing thing about that album. Again, wreck you you guys kind of ran down the track list that I, I would agree with. I, Out of control is um, my favorite track off that album. It's one of my favorite YouTube tracks, period, uh, because it's just so unbridled. It's it's like a roller coaster without a safety bar on it. Um, just it just goes up and then it kind of it brings you down. It kind of does that lull, that instrumental lull, and then it brings you. You know, Bono just does that primal scream, and boom, it goes right back to it, and it just it kind of just kicks you in the ass and doesn't stop. Um, but I think the most the the thing that's so great about this album, and this is what I mean about taking you back to a time, um, it, this album it basically became a staple of underground radio on college campuses, um, even in the states. Um, you know, we we live today where we have you know, Pot Save America on, on college campuses, and people can just download it, and or you have Spotify, and so like the mixtape was kind of gone, you know, the way of the dodo and. Um, as well as like kind of college radio stations where you have to search to find them. And then when you find them, you know, they sound echoey. So U2's sound was made for kind of that AM college radio where it was already fuzzy and it was already echoey, um, it was already noisy. So the way that they kind of caught fire was with that they kind of caught fire in this whole underground thing that was happening with you know with radio at the time and in the end of the 70s and then into the 80s and the early 80s um, and they became you know like Jeff said one of these staple post-punk bands um, in that genre um, they became one of these groups that you just you passed around and they were on a tape or if you listened to uh, you know on campus this is who you heard you heard uh on cat Dubba, and you heard stories for boys like uh like jeff said you heard the electric company um and then of course you also uh, i will follow which i don't know what you can say about that song it's you know uh, it's it, it, for that song to be the introduction to a band um to what that must have been like would just been like i i've never heard anything like this before in my life
1: funny thing is you talk about unbridled energy on the on uh, out of control for me the, the the song on this album that embodies that is the electric co and i have to say it is the electric co because that's how bono sings it. if you don't know the electric co <laughs> like well uh, why why are you saying electric co and not company well apparently because it's not about electric companies it's about electroconvulsive therapy uh, you know somebody, one of their friends. Uh, I don't know if it was for psychological issues or drug abuse or whatever, but he was given electroshock therapy. And you know, this is a, a thing that people did to their kids back in the day. It seems so barbaric now, but uh, apparently it was a thing. Uh, but that song, oh my god! Everything about that song. Uh, when I first heard it, it was just like one of those moments where you know, I bought this album. You know, and you know, I put it on and I'm listening to all these songs and they're all really solid. And I'm like, wow, you know, the U2 sound is there. And then right near the end. Of the album. This is the second to last song on the album. You know you, that 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 vibrating riff from The Edge comes in, and then you know you know those 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 drums kick in from Larry Mullen, and then Bono goes "Ooh," and you're like, "Whoa, this." Ben knows how to arrange an anthem, and then it ends with that blazing, like you know, sparks of guitars shooting out as it fades and it fades and it fades out. And you think that's the end of the song, and then because I guess they just felt like being stupid, they fade it right back in after they faded it out, and then they finally end it. it No idea why they chose to do that. Maybe it's because there was an entire minute of the playout and they couldn't think of anything better to put on it. So they just decided, well, we'll fade it out in the middle and then bring it back in. And
2: yeah, they uh, were, that, they the, were that's twenty year old hooligans.
1: They were twenty year olds, exactly. They were just <laughs> making this stuff up as they went along.
2: But Jeff's you know, the, Jeff made a good point about that. Is it is their it is kind of their only just I don't want to say pointless, but it's where they don't feel like they're serving some higher purpose with their music. Right. It's just pure, just yes. let it rip, kids. It's just 19 and 20 year old kids, you know, playing, you know, just this album. And again, I, I like to use the analogy when talking about them where they were is kind of like spotting. You have to take the characters from Transpotting and put them into a room to form a band. Um, and you and you mention about uh, a day without me and about suicide. Suicide is a theme that runs thematically for Bono up until two albums ago. Um, and it, we'll get into that as they go into later but um, a, a lot of it has to do with you know watching a lot of these kind of hooligan friends how they kind of break out of it um, and how so many of them they weren't able to kind of bring with them so a lot of like these gang members that, that had, um, they had they would turn into petty crime or they would turn into drugs and they lost a lot of friends to things like that and like drug said, use?
1: yeah I mean mm-hmm.
2: um And so, and that kind of goes in what you say, Jeff, into the next album about um, how they kind of turn their backs on all of that stuff.
1: I mean and the thing is is about that next album, you know, it, it's always hailed as a turning point for YouTube, but I swear to god, all the seeds of their their sound, the sound that made them mega stars is still there on boy like Ankat Dub. I'm not I don't speak Gaelic, so man, I don't know how that's actually pronounced. <laughs> the, the the black cat. I mean, that is mystery that is murky, that is dark sexuality. I mean, apparently it is about like sexuality. Like the black cat that Bono was singing about is like some woman who basically like steals his virtue as a young man i mean but it's all there everything you know from you can hear The Unforgettable Fire. The entire album, you hear it on that one song. And I feel like that's the song that that made Eno agree to produce them later on down the line. When he was like, Okay, you guys aren't just all like, you know, splenetic political anthems like Sunday, Bloody Sunday. You you've got some some mysticism in you too. And of course that mysticism isn't gonna ever get more pronounced than it is on the second album, the famously compromised evangelical Christian album. October. Now, I have in my collection of music memorabilia a magazine, a hilarious magazine that I found at a bookstore when I was a kid, uh, or in college rather. I found it like you know somebody had it you know posted behind a desk at a used bookstore, uh, and it's 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 from like some uh, you know a Christian organization. It's like called Christianity Today, and what does it have on the cover? It has the four somber-looking lads from U2, and the headline that's written on it is the future of christian rock you too and this is what a lot of people who listen to this band don't know is that they are a christian rock band they are really a Christian rock band, and it comes through on almost all of their lyrics all the way up until the present day. Bono cannot stop writing about it, and I mean good because I think he actually, it's it's, it's much better than his, you know, as we'll get into sort of his generic love, light, love stuff. Uh, when he writes about God and when he writes about faith, he's a lot more profound, but what happened here is that these guys all grew up in, you know, Catholics in Dublin, uh, and also kind of Hooligans, probably not taking it too seriously, and then I don't know how it happened, but Three of them, um, the Bono, the Edge, and Larry Mullen, uh, uh, you know, were got born again. They they joined a Christian fellowship society and they suddenly decided like we're going to like you know, devote our lives to, to clean living and to, you know, glorifying the name of God. And that sounds nuts, but that's absolutely what happens on October which is an album uh, almost entirely composed of, of uh, religiously-themed songs, and it also happens to be one of the worst albums they ever did. I don't know if there is a relationship between those two things. I think it might have more to do with the fact that Bono had all of his lyrics stolen from yeah. him. Uh, he had a suitcase full of them that was pilfered from him, apparently, when they were touring their
2: which has happened three times yes. over the course of his career. That's hilarious. Well, I mean, After I the first time, it probably became a shtick. It, People yeah, just like looking hey, to steal Bono think, suitcases. Yeah, it's like he writes better at the last second. Get rid of his lyrics. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, but you
3: who's the edge oh, stealing
2: God. his lyrics. He's writing, he's writing another song about love and love and light
1: and love and you're my <laughs> life. Get rid of it. Yeah, it. Paul, Paul McGinnis stole his suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> <That's what laughs>
2: throw, it, throw it into the river.
1: But yeah, so October is an album but we could pass over it quickly. lot. Everybody treats it kind of. It's as a weird footnote because the songs feel very half-formed. Not nearly as assured as on the first album and certainly not as they were going to sound on the next one. But uh, I still find a lot to like here. I like, the, I like that weird mystical air from this album. It, it's It's Again, the only thing that that comes to mind uh, that's similar to it in their discography would be the Unforgettable Fire, but I really love Gloria, the opening song, where you know just sort of fades in, mm-hmm. and, you know, like it's been playing for five minutes already. Bono's like halfway through some, like you know beautiful whale and then one two three four and then he sings uh, you know about God and then he literally at the end of it just breaks into Latin Gloria in excelsis Deo that
0: that last minute is worth the rest of the song no matter what that that last minute or so of Gloria is fantastic
1: amazing, and it was also one of their just signature live tunes from that era. But yeah, there's a lot on this record that just doesn't work, like "Rejoice" and "Fire" and "Tomorrow" and "With a Shout." The songs aren't so scarlet; they're fun. They're they're kind of like you know interesting mood pieces, but they're not written. Uh, they're just songs that are just sort of like, we, "Here's the tape rolling," and we, we jam for a bit. It has the very fond of like you know half-baked feel to it but um you know a lot of people kind of consider this to be one of their dark horse favorites by the band
2: No, they shouldn't i think it's i think i think october is a misfire on just about every single level um but again i wasn't the thing that's fascinating is i wasn't around for the release so when you picture an album like boy that comes out you know and then this it just kind of yes Sets things on fire a little bit, and then you're okay. Here's oh, their follow up album's coming out, you know. And then to put that in and kind of get that, you know, weird first reaction was probably how I felt with Zeropa. Um, just like what, what, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm, they could have really been a two, two albums and done had this been kind of. Yeah later on and where music that's how it is you basically have to release two great albums if you're going to have a career um the 80s were a little bit differently or worked differently so um but I, I, there's not a lot that i like a glory i'm with you guys i like i like october just how it brings you down to that somber piano and which was completely different than anything they'd really done
3: Tuba, and the trees are stripped bare of all they wear. What do I care about? And kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. You go
2: I threw a brick through a window, feels like. Uh, an early demo of Sunday Bloody Sunday. It, it just feels like that was one like what you, um, you you said something. Scott, you said something interesting about how a lot of their career feels like sketches for stuff that they would later yes. do. Yeah. Um, and I, hundred percent agree with that assessment. A lot of what's in October just feels like unfinished ideas for what would go on to be other songs. Yeah, it feels, it feels like these better, would be like bonus tracks on a re-release of Josh. I, I would, yeah, I wouldn't even say that. I would say these are just unfinished thoughts. Um, it, it felt like they You could feel the, on this, you could, you could sense the pressure they were probably feeling for a great follow-up. Um, and then of course, like you said, I think the, the change in lifestyle when they joined the Shalom uh, Fellowship um you start i think you start to get again this they didn't really know what they wanted to do because they almost broke up over this album it's like you said you had three of them who weren't sure if they even wanted to be musicians They, they wanted to go be missionaries um and then you had adam clayton over here you know smoking it up and wanting to hang with the chicks and he's just like no this you know we're in a freaking rock and roll band i didn't join for this i didn't join to go play by the rules. And basically, um, Bono took him aside and said, and basically just said, we, we're we not going to do this without you. So if this is what you want to do, um, they basically said, we'll kill it right now. Um, but he based, Bono basically took him aside and said, but we, we can't do this without you. So, um, they came kind of to a reconciliation and they, they got through it, um, and even and people always think you, you, it's Bono in the edge and stuff like this. It, I mean, one of the closest relationships was Bono and Adam Clayton. Adam Clayton mm-hmm. was his best man at his wedding um, in the middle of the 90s, an octoon baby, when these guys are doing poppers before they walk out on the stage at Zoo TV. You know, Adam Clayton's getting into some pretty hard alcohol drug use, and it was basically Bono who pulled him aside and said, knock this shit off, you know, um, and basically had him go to rehab. It's, you know, so... Uh, Bono and Clayton really, especially early on, developed this kind of bond um, between the two of them, a personal bond. Is I would say that like, the Edge and Bono have the creative juices between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say Mullen is far and away the best musician in the band. Um, and so they he did. I mean, Bono just said to Clayton, listen, we're not if you want to go, go. We're not going to stop you. Um, but we can't do this without you. And
1: And he was was right, as we will see on the next album. But before I get to that... He basically said, you know, let's
0: stick this out, and and that's what happened. Scott, you have any thoughts on October? There's no reason to belabor the discussion. Uh, I actually liked October more than I thought it would the first listen. It did not hold up for me on subsequent listens all that well um and and the two songs that i pull have already been mentioned uh, uh, gloria again uh, at least for that last minute or so which which is just magnificent and uh, the title track october which is this very skeletal composition with the edge playing a piano part and i thought i had it's the first time edge had played piano since he was a youth uh, or at least younger than he was at the time I mean, he's still 2021 20, whatever he was but uh, uh, he had not played piano in a long time and comes up with this wonderful piece uh for october um which is uh, largely instrumental I think there's only one verse of lyrics right toward the tail end, uh, but it really paints this kind of gray uh, October-esque picture uh, of a soundscape. It's a very good job Those two are the only ones I really want to highlight from from October
1: I mean the funny thing though is Steven said, you know they, they they took you know Adam aside and they said listen You know, we'll just we'll just call this whole thing off if you don't want to go on with us because we need you and I think that the next album they put out proves that point point. Because, and here's something I don't ever hear people say about War, their third album from 1983. Uh, Adam Clayton owns this album.
0: Yes, he does. Right?
1: Yes, yes. The bass on this album, there's like this it's, it's, you, everybody thinks when they think of war, I mean, obviously they're going to think of the two, two, not only the two most famous songs in this record, but basically two of the most famous songs in the history of rock music, which is the opening track, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and then, of course, New Year's Day. All right, New Year's Day actually I think is is much more reliant on the bass than people realize because this is very kind of like you know absolute you know dominantly thrumming rhythm that goes through the whole thing. But go listen to the rest of this record. Listen to like a song, or Refugee, or especially Two Hearts Beat as One. Mm-hmm. That really funky slap bass that, that that Adam Clayton is playing on that song. That song actually might be my favorite one on well, the
2: record. Seconds. He really drives seconds just with that. Yep. Yep. Boom, boom, boom! Boom!
1: Boom! Boom! Boom!
2: right, right and that really comes you're right it's almost like they ramped him up for this album
1: um, right and but this this album couldn't be more different in in a way this is the first album these three albums are both all produced by Steve Lillywhite you know he he actually wasn't supposed to do this one uh, he you know he was he he was going to you know go on to work with other artists but the but the band came to him and basically said we need you help us you know we got to keep this got to keep this band together we didn't really have a great sophomore effort and he said all right fine Uh, And what he ended up producing with them is an album that sounds so much different than the the sort of early Joy Division post-Punk of Boy or the sort of mystical half-formed song sketches on October. This thing is angry and it is immediate. There's nothing until the very last song, 40, which is the the 40th Psalm uh, repurposed. That's a dreamy, dreamy piece that might have you know, conceivably fit on one of their earlier records. But everything else on this record is a massive step forward. It's a different band. And, uh, you know, this is a lot of people's favorite U2 albums for a reason. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has anything new to say about Sunday Bloody Sunday, because it's one of the most famous rock songs in the history of the whole like genre. But I'll just say this, that... It's so easy, you know, nowadays to forget what a ridiculously brave song it was back in 1983. These guys are Irishmen. This is during the Troubles. You know, they're playing a song that could easily be misinterpreted, whether you know it's by one side or the other side. And these, you know, and when you're angering people uh, during the tr- Troubles, these are people who really have no compunction about you know blowing you up or killing people. okay you know, they're people, a little they were a little sensitive about this <laughs> people don't realize just how violent the troubles were like those irish pe those irish terrorists man they did not was, mess it was, around it was a bit much it was tough stuff so to come out right and basically in between two of these these two warring sides and then just interpose yourself in the middle and say stop fighting it's a great way to get you know like Thrust through with swords on both sides to get killed, and yet they pulled it off. And it's such a brave song, such a powerful song. And then that Christian message at the end, where he talks about how, you know, we have to win the victory Jesus won. I don't think most people even hear that when they hear it on the radio because it comes right at the end and it, you, you can miss it if you're not paying attention. But, uh, you know, nowadays it's just a classic rock track, all right? It's so easy to forget what it meant in its time in 1983. And these guys deserve a lot of credit for pulling that off.
0: I think War is really excellent, and and if you break, uh, you can break some of YouTube's career into like th- uh, not thirds, but it, you know three album kind of kind of arcs. Uh, of These first three, before you get to Unforgettable Fire, War is War is my favorite. Um, and The music is 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 harsher. It's their first huge huge success in the. U- it went to number one in the UK. Uh, Twelve. The first, it was the first album to knock Thriller off yeah. the charts. So <laughs> that, that alone
2: suggests that they they were on a different plane.
0: Yeah, uh, did well. At Twelve in the U.S. and so not not bad. And as Jeff mentioned, uh, something to, to pull out of this. Yes, this is this is Adam Clayton's album uh, breaking out all over the place. just Simple, strong bass lines propelling a whole bunch of these songs. Uh, Jeff mentioned New Year's Day. I, th- I think Drowning Man is a great uh, Clayton uh, bass line. Seconds, which Stephen mentioned. I mean, Clayton really plays his ass off all over this album. Uh, Seconds is a really neat song, kind of a funky rhythm to it. Uh, focusing on nuclear proliferation, which uh, much like suicide and, and love and light is is a focus of, of Bono's lyrically, especially in this era. Um Two Hearts <laughs> Two Hearts Beat is one is is um, just an underrated track that, that um it's not it's not dancing in the way that of course and, and and pop might be, but it is It'll get you up and moving. And uh, Adam Clayton's got another great bass line there, as Jeff mentioned. Bono has a fantastic vocal performance. There's uh, the Edge. Two,
1: this. Two Hearts is the one song that I play to people who say they don't like you, too. Hmm. And I play that one for them, and they're like, oh, well, I, I don't like you, too. But I really but, like yeah. this song. I didn't know this song. Uh, song is amazing. <laughs>
0: The Edge plays this really nice counter-melody during the chorus. It's a, it's a great song. Um, I mean, uh, a couple like, I, I don't love. I don't love uh, The Refugee. I don't love uh, Red Light on this album. But, you know, outside of that, it's pretty consistent quality. And coming off of the uh, uneven October, uh, just a massive step forward. And I think kind of all the... Band members staking the claim as to who they are, even in their respective slots in the band. You know, uh, on the edge, I think his his uh, uh, guitar work is pushed forward here on War more so than some of the earlier albums, too. And then you Clayton's very strong. Larry Mullen plays a click track for a whole bunch of war. He didn't want to. He talked to... I can't remember who he talked to. I think it was the Lily White.
1: Lily White told him that like, yeah. you should do this. And then and he rebelled against it. And he said, like, listen, this is what, like, you know, all the great, like, funk and R&B yes. guys yes. do, too. And he was like, all right. And it worked and it well. it worked. <laughs> it worked well.
0: Um, it worked really well. And yet, two extremely famous songs that still get played to this day in Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and New Year's Day, uh, War my favorite uh, album to date that we've discussed uh, U2's discography for sure.
1: I was yeah. I, I was blowing people's minds about this on Twitter uh, last week and, and I'm just going to mention for the folks here listening to the podcast, I have to do this. Um, people have bought War, listened to it, and loved the song Seconds and never realized the that's the edge singing that song yes and you're yeah, not yeah yeah bono yeah
2: not the whole song. he does he does the, <laughs> he, first he, he,
1: the only part he doesn't do is the ussr gdr london new york Peking. the part where like you really got to get that high power range and that's why bono takes that verse but everything else that's that's the edge singing that even at the end he comes back you know for the say goodbye say goodbye part um so isn't it really bizarre that in a band that is most famous perhaps for the vocal talents of you know Bono, one of the most singular and unique vocalists of the rock era, that they had another guy in the band who happened to sound exactly <laughs> like him yeah, I guarantee you you listen he to that he song! Harmonizes you with
2: listen his own guitar, and so he has you know he kind of, as Bono kind of always just yelled he just Bono was just gifted naturally with a voice. you had the edge who kind of learned to do it just by through harmonizing through his own sounds,
1: but it still freaks me out that i every time I listen to the first part of seconds, I think. Okay, I know this is the Edge singing, but no, that's Bono. Come on! And then I have to go listen, go watch like the Red Rocks video where they perform the song live, and then you know Edge comes up and sings it, and I'm like, how do the same sounding voices come out of these two different people that just happen to be in the same band? One person on Twitter had a really great theory is that maybe all Irish males sound the same, and, and, and that's the only thing <laughs> I can think of to explain this. But anyway, Stephen, what were you going to say? Yeah,
2: I think think you summed it up when you said this is an angry album. U2 has always been at their best when they're angry. Um, I think part of that is where they... It's like what you said, what they saw going on in their homeland. Um, A lot of... The the funniest thing when you look at U2 throughout their career is they never really, ever really released two bad albums in a row until just recently. But um, because it's almost kind of like Getting, you know, pissing these guys off and telling them that they couldn't do it again or whatever is kind of what motivates them. So, coming off of October, they release one of their best discs of all time um one of the more prominent discs of the 80s um this is kind of what i mean about a time capsule you go back and you just say here's a you know here's one of the albums of the 80s that's that's a must listen to um but you are right that the album as a whole is just it's their angriest album it's you can just feel it like you said you have just clayton hitting his bass bono's you know there is a rage in him in this that wasn't there in october um, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that October was so bad and it wasn't that critically received well that they said, OK, well, we're going to prove you wrong and we're going to release this album. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what happened also with Rattle and Hum and Octoon Baby. You know, and they just took so much heat for, you know, the kind of commercial disaster that Rattle and Hum was. And they said, all right, well, we're going to go away. We'll see you in three years and we're going to prove you all wrong again. Um, and they did the same after pop with All That You Can't Leave Behind. And so there is that theme that runs throughout the career um and the other thing that made obviously the how this launched them was they became now they became a live band with this album these became anthems that people wanted to sing back to them like New Year's Day and Sunny Bloody Sunday and Seconds has that chorus where they can get the whole crowd going oh 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 you know <laughs> And, um, of course, you had forty, which was kind of their last song, which is gets everybody singing along," which you hear on the Red rocks disc,
1: yeah, um, how long to sing this song, and they just walk rough. off, and the crowd does the right. rest and they yeah. keep doing it and
2: this was, the, this was the one that kind of basically sick that got people to say "Oh, I want to I go to that show because you saw they, they were starting to do festivals now, and they' starting to do these large outdoor crowds, this is where Bono would start hanging off the rafters, um, so he was able to just take that voice out of a club. And then kind of start to craft this, you know, rebel leader, you know, Les Miserables, Man of the People persona that you saw when he's waving the flag around and he's climbing off the rafters. And um, and the funniest thing about this album, is this is what I talk about as growing up, is I grew up 20 minutes from Red Rocks. So I had no idea about this thing ever in my life. Um, and so that would, of course, Red Rocks would go on to be the kind of album that launched them into the MTV era, of, you know, where you saw the videos for I Will Follow, where it's the sketches and the white stage, and then New Year's Day, they're out in the snow, and Mullen has the little drummer boy thing. So they had these themes, but um, this was the album that really blasted them off, and it wasn't just because of the music, it's it was able to form the rest of their personas, where how you see adam clayton he kind of holds his base like he's holding a rifle a lot he holds it really low right um because he has these really super long arms but then he the way he stands is he stands like you're you know supposed to stand when you fire a rifle just his feet are out kind of um he has that just typical you know that slurred lower lip and just beats his head down he's kind of one of the most uninteresting guys to watch but um (laughs) he kind of just knows he's so cool um, more so than I think Bono or those guys do he's the only kind of original again rock star in the band yeah, the other guys are a little try hard and he's not <laughs> <laughs> no that's exactly you're exactly right and Mullen doesn't really care either the way he just thinks he's Elvis um, <laughs> but um, yeah you, this was this was really an album as you go back and like I say you retcon them um, and this is when I listened to her again like Jeff said, in the '80s, you heard "Sunny, Blaze Sunday" everywhere. You heard "New Year's Day" everywhere. So going back and then hearing them in the context of the rest of this album for the first couple of times, it's it's incredible. And like I said, it is kind of the most angriest, punkiest album, which is ironic because it's the album that really launched them out of the rest of that jumbled mess that were the eighties bands.
1: And then speaking of irony, and we're talking about retconning, you know, I I opened the show by saying that one thing that, you know, because U two is just now just, they're so major. They're so mega. Their discography is like sort of a, it's a geographical feature in the landscape. You take it for granted. You know, people don't really, really realize these days, just how much of a left turn, the unforgettable fire was from war. Now they're just albums that, oh yeah, The Unforgettable Fire has these classic songs. War has these classic songs. And they're all part of the U2 canon. But when, like in 1983, when they're they're spitting hot flame with stuff like seconds and, you know, like a song and their two hearts beat as one, you know, this is really kind of, uh, there's a new abrasive, aggressive edge to the band. And you think, well, this is where they're going. Their sound is evolving. And then what happens? Well, they meet Brian Eno. Brian Eno, who I keep waiting one day to find that guest who wants to talk about Brian Eno. I, we're we're going to see if we can make a show based around ambient music interesting. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I love him, and I love all of his production stuff uh, as well. Uh, what he did to U2 is he softened their sound immensely, but also m- – Basically gave them the tools to become global megastars. And what happens on Unforgettable Fire is that instead of the flame, the fire, and the fury of war, even though this one actually has the word fire in its title... It's so much more soft focus. And I, for the longest time, I used to contend that the thing about Unforgettable Fire is that half of it was genius and that half of it was garbage. I still think that there's one song on here that's completely unredeemable in any way, which is Elvis Presley in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just six and a half minutes of of tombless gorm. I really, really can't stand it. And I just wish they'd put on some of the B-sides like Three Sunrises or Love Comes Tumbling or, or something like that instead. But I got to say, you know, the longer I live, the more I listen to this album, even the stuff that didn't make a huge impression on me, like Promenade or Fourth of July or even MLK, which I always used to regard as kind of like a cheap rewrite of 40, same basic idea. um, That stuff works for me. and. The more immediate stuff, I just think is amazing. I will say it right now: there are two songs that I consider to be contenders for the greatest thing that YouTube has ever recorded and will ever record. One of them is the opening track to "The Unforgettable Fire." That's a sort of homecoming. A sort of homecoming is one of Bono's best lyrics, most most you know imagistic, poetic. Uh, you know about and you know it's time to go through the sleet and driving snow across the fields of morning light in the distance. Oh, it's so powerful. On borderlands we run, and then he just performs it with this vocal that I will say. And this I am a hundred percent certain of is the best vocal in the band's career. And coming from a guy who's known for being one of the great vocalists in rock, that is saying something. You will never hear a better Bono vocal performance than when he says no spoken words just a scream and then he gives you that bellow that almost animalistic bellow like a wounded like a wounded animal and he just cries and he hits every note perfectly oh tonight tonight we'll build a bridge across the sea and land i first heard that song and that was the moment i didn't Really had my curiosity peaked by boy when I bought that one. Like the next day, I went out and bought The Unforgettable Fire. That's the first thing I heard. And then I was like, all right, these guys aren't our greatest hits, Ben. This song didn't get onto their greatest hits. And that's strange because this may be the best thing that they've ever done.
0: Uh, more toward your initial I think it, you'd say, call your initial uh, uh, review which is kind of half half great half crap, half yeah. crap. That, that, that's uh, much closer to where I am there are some undeniable again every album has every U2 album has at least a couple undeniably fantastic tracks you talked about a sort of homecoming excellent you know, "Pride in the Name of Love," um, one of the most played YouTube tracks, without a doubt. It's, I don't even like that one that much. <laughs> it's not. It's not really. It's kind of out of place on the album, right? It it, it doesn't really fit. It's it certainly sounds like a track you'd hear on, on, on the radio that would get some play. Uh, my favorite part is that is that Mullen drum roll into the chorus. Um, I I just I love it. I love it. I'm a drum guy.
3: Free at last. Hey,
0: Uh, wire I, I like wire which which almost sounds somewhat talking heads influenced around that time especially over the the close of the song uh, a lot of percussion a lot of tension uh in, in the melody um, you know the title track is good uh, bad is good and the rest i'm not really sold on here uh mullen sounds looser on the drums i don't know if he's still on the click track i would i would guess not um you know th- th- it sounds um some of the songs sounds kind of sketchy, uh, you know, kind of soundscapes, kind of unfinished. We just talked about uh, ELO and Out of the Blue. It's an album I think works far better as individual tracks than a full album. I think this is the opposite. I think if you hear some unforgettable, track, unforgettable Fire tracks, apart from the rest of the album, I don't know if they hold up quite well enough. You kind of have to experience it as to what you two and Brian Eno were trying to design with this album and and the more kind of ambient and abstract sounds that began to be pulled in i think it works better as a unit that said i'm still not completely sold on how well it works as a complete unit those those standout tracks i mentioned previously
2: yeah i think this was their first grown-up album this was you know we're we're not we're not those punk kids anymore um and there's you still hear a lot of this album through them even today and that's just mainly because Eno st- has stuck with them through just about every single album um, but I feel like it's like you kind of had the last three albums dying with the first kind of four tracks of this and then fading into this whole album kind of becomes then a-, a cocoon that butterflies into you know what they would become um, uh, Bad was, was, uh, was of course became a really famous track of this album that was that was written for uh, supposedly a friend of theirs that overdosed on heroin on his 21st birthday and this kind of that kind of became the staple track of this and of course like you said I think it goes on for something like almost seven minutes I think Um, so of course that could have been trimmed down but this is where U2 became a kind of anthemic style band Um, and I think it's really interesting how Eno. Came in and basically pulled the reins back on them, which isn't something that you would really think would have happened. I mean, maybe for him it would have, but he kind of comes in and he just completely pulls the edges guitar back. And he's like, okay, instead of just constant. You know, screeching and wailing into the amplifier. We're going to kind of turn you more into how he punctures holes throughout the songs. Um, it's not just this constant uh, wall of sound. He actually uses it strategically inside the songs. Um, other than, say, like Pride in the Name of Love is a complete uh, guitar song. And what's interesting is it's, it's funny because this is when they started touring America more And this is kind of the seeds of the Joshua Tree, and I think Joshua Tree will always eclipse this album because of that. Um, And this is also who they are as a band. They'll kind of release an album with some experimental stuff on it, and then they'll take those experiments and try to uh, form them into a whole album later on. And that's kind of what you had with Zeropa. And Octune Baby, and then you also had that with Pop and Zeropa where it was kind of like we're going to take these electronic elements and try to really just focus on that. And that's what you have with the Unforgettable Fire here, where you had such a pullback sound and a more, you know, I don't want to say it's not like a dance sound, but a more lounge sound, a more club sound. It's the first album of theirs where they use synthesizers. And that's of course all Brian. You know, I can just picture Eno coming in the first day with ten synthesizers and saying, "Here you go, boys. You know, this is what we're doing." Um, and so you see a lot of it's like what you, it's, it's like what you said, Scott. You have the seeds of what would go on to be mm-hmm. other things. Um, you know, one, one thing I know is MLK um, could almost just seamlessly fade right into where the streets have no names. Um, Is MLK is just this kind of Bono vocalizing, which you also hadn't really heard. It was really Brian Eno pushing him and saying instead of just kind of screaming and yelling, let's try to harmonize you. Let's do a song like Bad, where um, I want you to put I want you to get personal with this a little bit, not so much about religion or, you know, so much about politics or activism. I want to, I want something from you as a songwriter who lost a friend. What would you say? And that's kind of what this song is about. It's a letter from Bono to his friend saying, you know, if I could, I would, uh, you know, pull you out of this. Um, and I think it's poetically
1: one of their best songs it's also Um, impossible to talk about bad without talking about live aid right kind of the bridge between this and the joshua tree i mean it's funny we talked about live aid a a lot of course when we did our episode very recently on queen because that's what one of the things that everybody remembers from live aid is the great the great queen performance Mm -hmm. um radio gaga and all that Uh, but the other headlining performance of Live Aid was U2's and it, it were, they only played two songs I don't even remember what the first song they played was it might have been Sunday Bloody Sunday or something like that uh, but they were supposed to play three <clears throat> they were supposed to play Pride at the end because it was their big hit single and they never got around to it. Why didn't they get around to it? Because they ended up playing Bad for 13 minutes <laughs> and why it, did they end up it, yeah, it, it just kept
2: going. Like it, it was, just
1: kept going. It just kept going. But the reason it kept going, it became one of those iconic moments. And I just watched it again the other day, and it really is just one of those things. that's really moving. So Bono is singing it, and he's like, you know, he's, you know, he, he, I don't know, maybe he's thinking like, yeah, you know, we're we're blowing it here. We're not getting a reaction. So he's trying to like get the crowd hyped up. You know, he moves to the stage. He's you know lifts his arms up. He says, "Come on, come on." And then he realizes that. Oh, no, because everybody's reacting to be doing that. There's these girls in the front row that are getting squashed and crushed. Uh, And, you know, the camera, you can actually see it because the camera follows Bono on the stage. And, you know, you see him like panicking, basically, like trying to signal to the security guards like, hey, come on, you know, like get them out of there, get them out of there, back them up, they're in trouble. And they don't understand him. So we literally just hops off the stage, like over four different railings, goes down, pulls them out of the audience, and it's just one of those great moments. He just slow dances with them, you know? The the band is playing on this whole time. They don't know what's going on. Uh, they can't see him like they're pissed they're like where did where did our lead singer go <laughs> so they're just doing like that same most, repetitive most riff.
2: that's most youtube live shows <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, where
2: is he what does he do oh he's at the back of the arena now great
1: but what i find hilarious yeah. is that you can watch this moment and it's just really moving bono was like just you know, like literally he just you know saves these girls from getting crushed and you know and it's a really loving moment the band thought the, the rest of the band was convinced that they had blown it on the biggest stage imaginable and then they torpedoed their chances and they were like so furious with him and then they woke up the next day and they read all the papers saying like, you know stunning moment and you two plays, you know, live aid Bono saves girl from stage and they're like, alright Bono you can stay in the band <laughs> 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 I guess it's okay after all
2: Want to mimic that in most of the live shows? So, it's Zoo TV. He he would pull a girl on the stage for trying to throw your arms around the world. Uh, right. Which famously, one one time, it was Naomi Campbell. Um, <laughs> and then he of course did it for with, with or without you at the uh, at the Elevation tour. So that became kind of a staple of what he would do. Although I, I don't think he's so.
1: It's easy to it's it. easy to remember that it, it's a cliche now, but once upon a time it wasn't a cliche. It was actually something really spontaneous and really powerful. And, and that's he, sort of.
2: Yeah, 30%. Yeah, the other thing about uh, Live Aid is, P- and I don't know if you remember this, but they played right after the uh, the cars. Uh, I'm sorry, the police. <laughs> police cars. Um, they played right after- And so there was the moment where Sting handed his guitar off to, uh, to Bono. And that was kind of, that went back and looked at what we talk about, these bands that ha- haven't come out of the 80s and the ones that have. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, again, one of these moments that went on to kind of signal that, the, guard, the passing of the baton, yeah. The guard, the guard had just changed from kind of, you know, from from Sting to Bono to you know whoever one of these other singular name guys are. Um, but yeah, Live Aid was something oh, that I did, I didn't I have I've gone back and watched it and stuff like that. Um, I wasn't I wasn't aware of it at the time. It's one of these things that be f- kind of fun to experience again the first time. Um, but yeah, this was the, this was kind of the album that really you know made them grow up and i think really kind of say all right yeah now you you are a major band now you've you've kind of left the doldrums of the clubs behind you are a stadium band you are one of these giant acts now and then of course it all just became about how they were going to handle it but again with scott i'm with you i don't think this is a perfect album it's it is like what jeff said so just jarring to to put it in order And listen from you know what uh, war was like to then go right into the unforgettable fire it's almost like two different bands Um, on every level thematically other than the nuclear stuff their their cover uh, was from Hiroshima the artwork for this Mm -hmm. Um, but on almost every level everything about them is different except the members and their basic sounds are still there Um, but this is where, you know, Brian, Eno, I think just said, all right, we're, we're going to take what you're doing. We're not going to scrap heap it, but I'm going to take what you're doing and I'm going to kind of learn how to structure it more. And I'm going to actually make you play some songs and not so much just these kind of, you know, again, this just wall of people banging cymbals in your ears which was always good it was fine but Eno was definitely one of these guys that said let's try something different and um and, and I think that out of any of their early stuff this is the this is still the earliest album that they take with them to this day where you can still hear the modernization
1: of U2 in this album so speaking of modernization of U2 speaking of giant mega huge stadium bands what the hell are we going to say gentlemen about one of the most famous albums of the 80s the Joshua Tree i I yield the floor in despair because what can I
2: say about this? I'm the guest. I guess that's why I'm here. I'm I'm playing the Bono Jesus role for this. Um, yeah, and I th- I think what was interesting is there was what a three and a half year gap between Unforgettable Fire and Joshua Tree and like i said if you listen to mlk on the end of unforgettable fire you could almost just fade in where the streets have no name rate right, and it would fit seamlessly it'd just be like one track and there it is and it would go um and this is kind of the point we joked about how with oasis how noel gallagher once he got to that plane started hanging out with paul weller and all of his idols and this is where bono started hanging out with his idols he started mm-hmm. hanging out with keith Richards and Mick Jagger. And Mick Jagger, basically in his 80s phase, <laughs> um, was kind of turned, he's kind of the responsible for turning Bono on to kind of country and blues. And
1: well, I mean, again, at least he didn't turn him on to bad covers of Motown <laughs> songs, like Dancing in the Streets. Um, oh, man. Um, but, and this
2: is where, again, where they play with a theme. So the Joshua Tree has these themes of Americana, and then they take it overboard and Create a, again a commercial mess like Rattle and Hum. Um, U2 has always been their worst enemy. Is, is I think, you know, they ha- nothing has really stopped them, not drugs or alcohol or, you know, the rock star lifestyle. But, but U2's worst ending has always just been U2. They, they do something extraordinary and then they think it's almost like they buy into their own hype and then they take it to a level where everyone just goes, whoa, too far, bros. Um, but this album was, I mean, they wrote this on on the on the heels of several benefit shows. They did Live Aid, and then they went on to do a bunch more festivals like that, thinking, hey, we're going to use this. And they did one that was like a pro Maggie Thatcher uh, festival, which ticked everybody off in Ireland. Um, and so they kind of pulled back on that. and like, all right, we're not going to do these anymore. Um and so again, yeah. What do you? say, I mean, one of one of, if not the the best album of the '80s, you know, certainly perhaps the biggest. Um, but I also thought the themes on it are interesting. It's it's it, it's how it honors Americana. Um, but it's a very anti-American album, thematically and lyrically. Bullet the mm-hmm. Blue Sky and Mothers of the Disappear about U.S. interventionism in South America, that Bono saw when he was visiting there with his wife, and you know, um, on behalf of Red Cross and doing all the stuff. Um, Adam Clayton basically said, "This this is top to bottom an anti-Reagan album. <laughs> it's just capitalism's bad. Here it is," which you don't you don't pick up on some of that stuff. Um, and I told Jeff, I think I've listened to the first six tracks of this album uh, hundreds of times and i think i've listened to the last five maybe a dozen (laughs) um and it's it's i think like where it just it it ends for me is running to stand still which is one of my favorite all-time u2 songs which is again about drug overdose um, but lyrically, I think it's probably Bono's best song of, of all time, just the way it's abstract and there's some poetry in it, the contradictions. And he goes on to do a lot of this in Octune Baby. You know, you, you have to uh, talk without speaking, cry without, you know, cry without you scream without raising your voice. Those kinds of lyrics um, that directly play off words of each other's. where I kind of learned how to. Do a lot of writing myself. Uh, that kind of, you know, where things don't always make sense in the lyrics. You
3: gotta cry without weeping. Talk without speaking. Scream without raising your voice. You know I took the poison from the poison stream. Then I floated out of here.
2: And again, that kind of stuff then careened into uh, Rat on the Hump. But it was interesting seeing them do this album just last year Mm -hmm. where they did front to back. And on one hand, you're seeing it because it is really kind of cool. They had the stage set up. that looks like the cover of the album. Um, They come out and they do Where the Streets Have No Name right off the bat, which they usually do middle of the show. but then it gets fascinating because i'm sitting here watching it going how am i going to sit through trip your, through but, your wires man, <laughs> like what are they going to do within god's country trip through your wires um one tree hill i think is okay exit i really like i like the darkness of exit but even then and then mother mothers of the disappeared so that's what they did they went through the they went uh right through the track listing and then of course because it's you know about 90 minutes or so then they did about 10 other songs where they honor Lena Dunham for her service or something um, <laughs> but, uh, the, the, the Joshua Tree Tour was to me it was kind of the end of them live Bono because of his bike accident he's clearly kind of brittle broken down a little bit so he, the energy isn't there that you would see
1: with with some of these songs i mean can he uh, even hit those notes anymore i mean it's hard so, so those high notes on on still haven't found and with or without you i'm just very yeah, They you must have you, to pitch them down significantly and you me. like when you hear this i still haven't found i'm looking
2: for with the choir on rattle and hum um uh, this is kind of what i'm talking about like that's kind of the quintessential live version of that song um where the streets have no name where he he really in the elevation tour he runs around the catwalk and you saw this for the Super Bowl also where he kind of, he does like two full speed runs <laughs> and then he's still able to somehow sing the damn song <laughs> yeah. after doing that um, and so when you see this tour that they did um, it was the first time where you could really see it, where Bono's not doing, but he's hanging off the microphone stand, which I think is bolted to the stage. <laughs> uh, he, he kind of walks out onto the.
1: Oh, oh no! It's his walker. It's terrible.
2: Right, right. And so the that Bono's not comfortable standing in one place for an entire show. That's the most evident thing I saw of this. Was you know, and especially with Zoo TV, where he's you know he's playing with camera dollies and dancing with belly dancers and pulling girls up on stage and playing with giant remote controls. Um, he's, he's kind of the quintessential ADD rock star. And when he's sitting there on stage, at, you know, what is he? 55 years old now, standing there singing, you definitely, that's when you can kind of see how good those earlier live shows were. Um, and would still like, that's kind of the reason I wasn't really interested in seeing them do this, uh, Album live. I wasn't pining for it. I wasn't like, oh, I got to see this. Uh, but I took some of the show and I was like, you have to just, you have to see them live. And I think this is going to be the last, very last time you're going to see them live and still be like, ah, oh, that's you too. That was cool. <laughs> the rest, the next time is going to be sponsored by the AARP. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as like the album is concerned, it, it is crazy to me how. It's this album that honors everything about America, where you have you know four Irish kids standing in the desert, which was like most alien thing to them in the world at the time, um, and it was that was kind of their way of getting away from the noise that was going on around them, um, and that's kind of Bono's confessions. Like we could go out to you know you could go out to Joshua Tree and just be out there and not hear a sound, and it would just kind of you know all he basically said all you could hear is the music happening. Um, but again, I think it's a, how the album exists on its own. i like I said the first the first five songs are as good as any five songs on any album ever released and then the last you know six tracks uh, I could give or take um, so th- those are kind of my thoughts on it. Um, Where the streets have no name is still the best song of any band I've ever seen performed live it's it's almost a religious experience and it's not so much the performance as it is seeing just 60,000 people just hands up and down at the same time. And you're in either in the middle of this um, when they did the, uh, the show from Boston. Um, that's one I would tell people online, the elevation tour where they they were in Boston and they do where the streets have no name. That's the one I would tell people to go on YouTube and just watch it. And even if you're not a fan of the band, you'll just watch that and you'll just be blown away by, by what's happening.
1: Scott, I know you're not a fan of this album that much, so give us your hot take before I blaze you.
0: So this is my, I don't know, it's a hot take, right? I i didn't like Joshua Tree when it was uh, when, it, when it came out, when I was hearing the songs on the radio all that much. I didn't like it in the interim. I revisit it now for the show, and I still I still don't like it all that much. And uh, Stephen's on to something with, you know, the first five and, and the last six, which is real. I mean, it's side one and side two, side A and side B. Uh side A has, I think, three at least unimpeachably great songs. Side B, I'm really less certain of. And this, this I, I'm just not connecting with this uh much of this album on, on any level. Now, uh, people love the Joshua Tree. As Steven said, it's it, it considered one of the best albums of the nineteen eighties, and it just has never connected with me, except for a few highlights. Yes, Where the Streets Have No Name. Is an amazing song, and uh, I even thought that back back in the day, and, and it's sort of grown in stature with that uh, post 9 11 performance uh, at the at the Super Bowl. Uh, the way that it begins with that 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 synth just sort of fading up, and and then Edge's guitars springing to life, and it, it sort of alternates between this the, the longing in the lyrics and the euphoria in the chorus. Um, and for for an album that's about America and Americana and and that's the, th- the lyrical theme for much of it to kind of start with this song that evokes this feeling of wide open spaces is, is brilliant and it's a great great song. with or without she was also fantastic um never been a big fan of bullet the blue sky on, on that first side steven mentioned running to stand still which uh i agree with him i think it's one of the really great uh songs uh, of, of their career i think it's one of bono's really great lyrics that he put pen to paper on i, I hear a very um, lou reed kind of influence on part of the song uh, this, this the, lyrically this uh, discussion of the beauty and pain of humanity and, and heroin addiction again uh, again a thematic favorite uh, Bono's vocal performance is really fantastic uh, and it's a great song but I think that's the end of the real greatness on the Joshua Tree um, Red Hill Mining Town pretty good uh, it's not transcendent um a lot of that second half a lot of the second side of the album trip through your wires i, I unlike Stephen, i i don't like exit all that much i just man this has never this album it, never has connected it's written it, from the point
2: of view of a serial killer so that's probably right. why i like it <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah the other and not, I'll, I'll just jumping in real quick the yeah. other thing about this album is that you know this wasn't all kind of like fun and roses coming off of you know uh their last one like Bonnell's personal assistant died during this album from mm. a motorcycle crash I believe um, yeah, and that's and it, where One Tree Hill comes from yeah. yeah and that's kind of being at the funeral for that and so and again when he gets really personal and, and the lyrics about running to stand still are directly about uh, living in Ireland the, the lyrics were I see seven towers but I right. see one way out seven towers is basically where they all grew up in they all grew up in these kind of apartment complexes that you see throughout you know Ireland
1: I am going to now calmly and patiently explain why both of you are idiots. Uh, (laughs) This is a great album. uh, And I, for years, tried to deny that it was. I, for years, tried to pretend that I was too cool for school, that the Joshua Tree was overrated, that no, listen, if you're going to listen to you two, man, you should just listen to Boy. That's the good stuff. They didn't, you know, they just sold out later on. But listen, I come back to this and look, maybe I'm a dad. You know, maybe I'm just now like a stupid, you know, late 30s yuppie with stupid late 30s yuppie tastes. But this is a great record. And it, it really holds together the chief criticisms of this record when you actually get people to narrow them down. And I've been listening to both of you talk about this. And it's funny because you both sort of implicitly have done it, too. It comes down to two songs. Nobody likes Trip Through Your Wires. Everybody <laughs> thinks that that's like a really good ungainly uh, you know gawky attempt at at Americana it doesn't work and then everybody says in God's country well eh, you know it's just so generic it's bland but then everybody else says like oh you know some people will be like well I I, you know I really like One Tree Hill and Exit and Mothers Disappeared and other people will be like I really like Red Hill Mining Town I'm running to stand still I'm going to do that famous GIF and say, why not both? Okay. <laughs> why not both? These are all great songs with the exception of the two I mentioned. And the irony of them all is that two of the most famous songs are the ones that I don't much care for. I, this is going to sound insane. Uh, anybody who's been you know, sitting through the show patiently, when I tell you that I've never been a big fan of Where the Streets Have No Name, I'm just not here. Yeah, it's not bad. I'll listen to it when it comes on. I do love that organ intro. But no, I don't know. It, it, the chords do never modulate the way that I'm quite expecting them to, and it always disappoints me somewhere in my heart. And you know, as a huge fan of the Central Intelligence Agency's interventions in South America during the seventies <laughs> and eighties, <80s>, I, <laughs> I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Like I don't I, like "Bullet the Blue Sky." I, I said why he wrote them? <laughs> Well, you know, it's like, yeah, is this the only time that we're ever going to mention helicopter rides when we talk about Mothers of the Disappeared? But that's unfortunately what that is about. I feel like that's about Pinochet's Chili. or uh, It's either that or Central America. But it's the same basic idea. No, I'm actually kidding. I I, I like both of those songs. The thing I I really like, Mothers of the Disappeared, my objection to Bullet the Blue Sky is that it just feels very out of place on this album. It's like the one – my thing. I mean, it's probably it, my least favorite track on the album. Yeah, it's just one... I mean, I like the song. On, if you put that on Rattle and Hum, well, in fact, it is on Rattle and Hum, in right. a live version. <laughs> like, I like the part where it's like, outside is America, outside is America, and then Edge just doing these...
2: A different song, and this is the other thing with you too. Is um, there's songs that I've never liked from them that when I see them live, I'm like they, they, they come okay, off. Yeah. Okay, I get it. And I Bullet get the it. Blue Sky is like that. I, I don't. I, I. It's not when I listen to you know. I, I don't go to the gym and put it on or anything like that. But when you see it live, and he's got like you know they got the flare smoke going, and right. <laughs> You know, the images and then I know the whole gimmick that Bono did with the spotlight on the edge and stuff like that, uh, which he kind of took into uh, Zoo TV a little bit. He almost spoofs himself in Zoo TV doing it. Um, But, yeah, you see that song live and it's one of the when the edge does that. yeah." (laughs) Yeah, it does. It gets your it gets your energy up a little bit. I thought it was probably the best one that they did from their last from the Joshua Tree tour.
1: Right, but the funny thing is that on the actual album itself, it feels like it wandered in from a different yeah, U two album. It feels, like, it feels like it wandered in from the second half of War, and like the, the, they somehow like omitted it from that, and then revived it and put it on this one. And like in between, like with or without you, which is just so ominous. That ominous creep, it grew. It just like sneaks up on you, and then it explodes into this, you know, this this rapturous chorus where Bono just moans. Uh, and then on the other end, you have Running the Stand Still, which we all love. In between, they have both the blue sky there. It's just is really kind of
0: discordant.
3: When the red like a rose of a bone like all the colors of a royal bush. And it's peeling off those bills, slapping them down. 100, 200. And I can see those spider planes. And I can see those spider planes cross the mud huts the children sleep Through the alleys of quiet city street We take the staircase to the first floor We turn the key and slowly unlock the door As the man breathes into a saxophone And through the walls we hear the city groan Outside it's America Outside it's America America
1: Um, so that's my only objection to that. But there's, you know, uh, there's so much good music on this record. I'm going to just say this, and I know it's so cliched. But one of my favorite U2 songs of all time is I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And I know that that marks me off as, you know, as a normie. I'm very lame. I'm an NPC and all that. Yes, yes, yes. But I'm sorry. That, to me, and I'm going to speak personally here, I think that's one of the greatest Songs to actually incorporate, you know, spiritual lyrics and the spiritual search, Christian lyrics, into uh, a popular rock song that is ever going to be written. Uh, And when it gets to that end, that that final verse where Bono sings, you know, I believe in the kingdom come, and then all the colors will bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains. You carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I mean, I just wonder how many people listened to that song and thought, oh, that's a really fun little pop song. I really love it when he hits those high notes.
2: with with or without you with or without you like one of the greatest you know make out do it to songs in history and what it's actually saying is just like you know uh, you you kind of hurt me a lot but i can't push you away
1: (laughs) but i also i also thought that had christian overtones i also i also thought i know it's about a woman but there's also that weird kind of like spiritual aspect where it's like you know he says like you you give it all but i want more you give yourself away I, i feel like you know he's writing about jesus right but he's not it but it can definitely it, be read both ways
2: it was mainly a str- i mean the song is mainly coming from the strain of what fame was doing with his marriage at the time because right he was so unprepared for it right um even though he's he's incorporated his wife along a lot of the journey when they went to south america she came and when he did a lot of aid work she's been there so um, but this was about dealing with you know holy shit, we're the most famous band on the planet now you know we we were you know four kids in dublin and i was just trying to I was just—I just wanted to be in a band so I could like take you out on a date, and all of a sudden you're married to the guy who's now on every magazine cover on earth,
1: and meeting uh, with the president, and going and like right. you know, you know, talking uh, with Archbishop Tutu and stuff like that.
2: Well, it's, it's simple as 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 much as you can read into. That's basically what Without You is about. But it is so funny that it's considered this kind of great all time love making kind of make out song, and it doesn't have that kind of message to it. you're right about it. still have the phone i'm looking for it. it has this kind of pop anthem to it um but it is i think it's one of their most overtly religious songs that they've ever written um and then to real fast to go back on what you said about there's a big difference to me between running to stand still and then trip through your wires running to stand still has that americana twang to it on the right
1: it's the kind of it's kind of a like quiet country blues not but quite blues right. but yeah you get where they're, they're vibing but, on that right
2: Ciro bono's uh heritage. It's not his lyrics aren't rooted in Americana. His he's not trying to adopt it. He's still writing as his own lyricist from Dublin, Ireland, about what he experienced, you know, watching friends die from drug overdoses. Um, but he's just putting it to that americana guitar trip to your wires is him just trying to be an americana artist he's kind of getting completely outside of what he knows and he's just trying to write that you know that willie nelson style track um that basically like we said mick jagger wanted him to do so all right I, i think that that's what that sounds like and that's where they've always kind of hit a pothole in their careers they did this with pop where they think that they can kind of go do a genre better than i think what some of the people in the genre um do and they almost always don't do it and i think that that (laughs) was the problem with you know red hill mining town i like i think it's fine but like trip trip to your wires especially is just one of these just what are you doing man like um it just you went overboard on it. They're always their best when they experiment with other genres, but still keep rooted and grounded in where they
1: came from. All right. Well, speaking of trying to be Americana and failing, uh, I guess that inevitably brings us to the infamous follow up to the Joshua Tree. How do you follow up one of the most praised and biggest albums of the 1980s? Well, you do your self-indulgent movie documentary album. Soundtrack release, and that's Rattle and Hum. Rattle and Hum, where uh, all the quotes that we've used to make fun of Bono's pretentiousness have come <laughs> from this album. Not from, just Bono's,
2: uh, There's, there's the one before Desire, where they're like, this, this, meet this. A journalist is asking him a serious question about how does your
1: music change. Yeah.
2: like coming off of with with or how was it like coming off of Joshua? And then you hear Bono go, Adam, and Adam just goes. Oh, I don't know man. And then they laugh and it goes into le- desire. I'm like why is that on an album? <laughs> like what are you doing? I don't know what we're doing. Here's
1: Okay, but here's me here's my secret confession. I really like Rattling Home. I know That's I'm man. not supposed to. I know you hate this album. Everybody smart hates this album. But my contention is that I just plain hate it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I contend that once you get over the fact that Bono thinks that he is a new Jesus Christ saving the world but is really just fapping off to Americana and you get into that hilariously pretentious trip the music on this is good the live songs are good the studio songs are good get over the fact that i mean listen there's some you know that you know what I don't like I don't like the ones where he's trying to like oh we're we're, we're getting up with like blues and African American artists because I'm sorry there's just nothing further from U2 sound than blues so like when love comes to town I love BB King and I like U2 these are two great flavors that don't go well together <laughs> you know angel of harlem kind of is like that too for me it's like you know this little horn ballad you know a, it, both of these were released as singles they're both on their greatest hits neither of them is that good but when youtube just sticks to what it is that they do and they do well man i mean have, have you people listened to Hawkmoon? Hawkmoon 269 None of those lyrics make sense. It's like, you know, like a like a desert needs a flame, like x needs y, like x needs y. I mean, it's basically a simple trope. It's a simple two-chord vamp sequence, but when Bono is screaming in that voice about how much he needs my love, I am going to give Bono my love. I love that song. <laughs> desire i like the live version i I literally this last week as we were preparing for the show i found myself walking around all i could hear in my head was the gospel choir singing i still haven't found what i'm looking for live i remember when i first heard this album i didn't like that take because i'd been just so like raised on the original studio version but man i think that really works well i think that's a beautiful song I've, i've heard i've seen the the live footage uh which actually wasn't included in the documentary, but you, the outtake footage is available on YouTube. And Bono's arm is in a sling because he like dislocated his shoulder like two shows before. Um, but it looks—it's just wonderful. It's just beautiful and incredibly moving. And I gotta say, nobody ever should need to defend "All I Want Is You," mm-hmm. which I think is one of the five greatest songs that you two will ever record. And. You know, I, you know, Steven likes to talk a lot about how like, you know, later crap Bono kind of reverted to only writing about love and light and love and all that. And that's absolutely true. This is the, all I want is you is the exact
2: antithesis of just that light and love and love and light and light. This is where he right. does
1: it smartly. And he does exactly. It <laughs> this song is so simple, it's rock simple. Alright, there's there's nothing complex about it. This is one of like the first five songs I ever taught myself to play on a guitar when I was learning acoustic guitar um, and yet the glorious sort of profundity of the way the music unfolds, it's, it's like six and a half, almost seven minutes long it earns every second of its running time van dyke parks the guy who worked with brian wilson on smile does the string arrangement and guess what that string arrangement is amazing it's Mm -hmm. the best string arrangement in u2's career they didn't really go to strings that often but man on this time when they do it it is worth it i love that song i love it every time bono sings you know all the promises you make from the cradle Mm -hmm. to the grave but all i want is you The problem
2: with it was the song became a bigger hit on the Reality Bites soundtrack than it did on Rattle and Hum. Yeah. People forget. that was, um, or I'm not, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't Reality Bites. It was, um, oh, yeah. I thought it was Reality Bites. I was thinking Ben Stiller, and then Ben Stiller was in that. Ben Stiller is in Reality Bites, yeah. Plays the sellout guy. Um, Yeah, and Ethan Hawke. And, um, and Matt Dillon. Boy, everybody getting, was in that film. You know, I'm getting it confused with singles. That's why. Um, but no, this was Reality Bites with Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder and Penn Stiller. The song is on the soundtrack and this song then went on to have like some really super success because it was on this soundtrack as opposed to being lost in a we're jimmy hendrix and we're bb king and we're you know <laughs>
1: whatever the hell this is that we're I mean, doing it's not even a real album it's like a, it's half of a live album half yeah, of our new studio stuff it like, couldn't make up its mind about what it was trying to be but people forget
2: that this this album came out with a film and that's what it this was supposed to be like you two's you know again we're catapulting off of success into the stratosphere of uh martyrdom here with uh, they released a film with this that just got completely universally panned. I've never actually seen the film. <laughs> I'm not going to sit down and watch the film again. When you re- maybe at the time if this had come out, I probably would have gotten into it. Retconning it, I think I've listened to this entire album three times. It is it is completely uninteresting to me. There's parts of it that I like. Angel of Harlem is actually a track that I do like, and that's one that they played live. They played that at Zoo TV of all places. Um, so, I mean, Desire is on there. Desire maybe just has too much radio play for me, um, but that's about it. The, the interesting thing that I take from this album is, like I said, it was how they plant seeds for their next stuff. And if you listen to uh, a song like God Part 2, that sounds like an almost early demo for The Fly. Um, so you can also see how they were getting out of this. And then, of course, the famous thing that happened with this album where they went away again, they cocooned themselves and they came out a new butterfly is, uh, it was like the last show. I think, I don't know if it was Madison square garden or whatever, but they were at BB King. They had everybody up on the stage. Um, and Bono said that they people Dublin. It was crap. actually in Dublin. Oh, was it Dublin? Yeah, yep. it, where it basically says, uh, you know, this is gonna be it for us. We're just we're gonna go away and we're gonna dream this all up again. And everyone was like, Oh god, did they just break up? That was mainly again because the rhythm section of the band hated what they were doing. It Mullen and Clayton were just like I can't do this anymore. Like, we get it. We get it, Bono. You want to go lose yourself in the desert? <laughs> you know? Like, you love this stuff. Um, and even, like, I feel like the Edge is probably bored with this stuff. Um, but they almost were like, yeah, we can't keep doing this. We're going to go insane if we're just going to turn into this kind of, you know, the late stage Bono grows a beard and becomes Jim Morrison without the drug addiction kind of stuff. Um, so I that's as much as I can say on it. Um, I, there are some a couple good things about it but as an album it's just it's it's everything that's bad about you too and that's <laughs> i mean that musically i mean that thematically i mean that as their band they just they kind of got into their hype and were like yeah we're just we're gonna keep doing this because we can do whatever we want and they i think they learned that they couldn't because it was a huge misfire
0: so the problem with rattle and hum and stay with me is uh there's not enough good songs. Um, so what i mean by that is this is this is you know a weird amalgamation of, of live tracks and you know as as uh, you guys mentioned earlier some some actual you know uh, back and forth some talking and then of course new songs and um if it were marketed in a different way i mean if, if people thought it was like a b-side collection it might be pulled off but to kind of say here's our new album it's rattling hum man that's that's that doesn't really pull itself off very well there's...
1: the funny thing is that the b-sides from this album were amazing uniformly <laughs> amazing and like dancing barefoot everlasting love um a room at the heartbreak hotel there's a lot of great b-sides from this record they could have made an actual
0: album yeah but they didn't. as it stands they've got a pretty good ep uh of all the tracks on rattle and hum i mean give me give me desire which is that great Bo Diddley shuffle beat um I like Hawkmoon two, 269 and Heartland. I actually can, I think they're very similar songs. Um, all I want is you. Jeff spent a lot of time just talking about, man, what a beautiful, I, I, I can't, I don't know where my list is. It might be on my list of uh, of, uh, of five songs for the end of this episode. Uh, ben Tench plays organ on that, that song too. And the, the edge guitar solo was just mind-bendingly great. It's a, it's a fantastic song. I am in the uh, the Pro Angel of Harlem camp, so I'll, I'll break that tie. I know it's very you 2 to have all those horns and this Billy Holiday tribute, but uh, I-, I love uh, Bono's delivery. You know that she says it's heart, heart and soul. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I buy it. I'm buying that. That works. <laughs> And then, uh, you can throw on the, uh, uh, I still haven't found one, I'm looking for a gospel version. That's a nice six-song EP, Out the Door, No Problem. As it stands, it's a really bloated album, uh, with a lot of live tracks, and, and some of the live versions just don't add a- anything. I mean, the live version of Helter Skelter is all right, it's not, you know... The live version of All Along the Watchtower is I mean, Helter Skelter fine. was not
1: a good song in the first place. <laughs> and then for you two to do an even worse version of a not-good Beatles song... I, I every time I put on that album and then I hear it opens with Bono saying this is the song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles we're stealing it back and I'm like oh this is the beginning of your fail face
0: <laughs> who thinks uh. who think that's the best lead-off track for an album a cover of a Beatles, a live cover of a Beatles song that wasn't all that great to begin with and you know mentioning Charles Manson I I'm not I'm not real sure uh, to me, there's a feeling of exhaustion and a, a dead end feel to some of this album, which perhaps is why, uh, as uh, as uh, Stephen mentioned, you know, the announcement they're taking time off, we're going to reinvent, we're going to come back. And yeah, there was what, almost three, better than three years. About four um, years. Between Rattle and Hum and the very next thing you two would, pu- uh, would put out, which would be, I know in Stephen's mind and uh, per- uh, perhaps in mine too, one of the very best albums of that decade of the 1990s. That's Octum, Baby. Um, This, you know, a lot of recordings of U2 albums kind of follow the same path, right? The band kind of almost breaks up. Uh, They lose some lyrics. Uh, They have them stolen. They go down to the very last minute. It almost gets postponed. They have to write, you know, remixing songs hours before a deadline. And and this particular uh, album, and and Stephen has the story down cold, I know you know, this is another opportunity for the band to disintegrate. They go to Berlin to record the thing. It's going to be a place where they can find inspiration and Germany's being reunified. And it turns out that that's not what happens there at all. Uh, Very difficult for them to, to start to record music for the next album. And uh, Bono and the edge at this point have kind of uh, gone and, and, and and created a uh, songwriting partnership away from the other two guys in the band. And it's all saved. Um, when they when they come up with one and uh, as i said i think stephen has a, a little more detail on that yeah they
2: just they, they went to hansa studios which is where bowie did a lot of
0: stuff and so that was i think
2: the beginning i joke about how zero is their their bowie album but i think that this was the beginning of them this is kind of the, the recording out of dublin for the first time and like you said they wanted to go to berlin where the energy was high it's reunification and they get there and there's everything becomes dark. <laughs> it just goes in the opposite direction for everybody. But yeah, so I think a lot of this was basically Edge and uh or, or basically you two saying to Eno and, and Lanoi, it's kind of like we're out of ideas. We don't want to go and do this country thing anymore. And I think Brian Eno basically says them, how do you feel about making a, a dance record? How do you make basic make feel about making a club record? And they're oh, okay. And you had a lot of the problems where You had, you know, the edge is starting to play around with uh, some of these, you know, these clubby sounds, this electronica that's going on. You had Mullen, who, again, is a very stubborn, classically trained musician, like you said about uh, when they put him on a when they put him on a a clicker. Yeah. And he hated it. He absolutely refused. He's just like, nope. And then he stuck with it. It was like, okay. And that's similar to this. He was kind of like, what? What are we doing? And by this time, you know, Clayton was so high out of his mind, he was just happy to be in Berlin, pretty much, <laughs> of all the places on the earth. So they, it just was not happening. There was just these sessions that were notoriously contentious sessions, where you know Clayton would get in Bono's face and be like, "You don't like the way I'm playing it. You play this thing," knowing that he couldn't play it, um, and. It is really a cliche story, but basically, what happened is, is Edge came up with the first kind of chords for one, and it's kind of where they realized that you could, you know, Edge wanted to go with this route of nine inch nails, basically, and mm-hmm. you know, and Bo- and Bono wanted to be David Bowie, and you know, um, they had all of these things happening that weren't congealing with each other, and then uh, Edge plays the, the first chords to one, basically, is the, how the story goes. And they basically pulled a song out of it, and that's when they realized you can make a kind of uh, a lounge album, like a club album, um, but you can still root it with heart and soul in it. You can still you can still anchor it with a soul. And I think that that's the best way to even sum up this album is you can have these kind of, you know. You know, weird, almost drug-induced tracks like Zoo Station are even better than the real thing. And then what Jeff said about how Bullet the Blue Sky kind of wanders in and it's into the Joshua Tree, like it shouldn't be there. That's kind of what One does. One kind of wanders in after these two, you know, up-up kind of dance style songs, and then you're kind of like, oh, where did this come from? And then it almost kind of wanders back out with Until the End of the World and, and Who's Going to Ride Your Wild Horses. Um, but yeah, as, uh, this is this to me is the best album of the 90s, and maybe it's just personal. I know people are going to argue gonna say Nevermind. Um, I'm of uh, the opinion that Nevermind isn't up there if Kurt Cobain doesn't blow his head off. Um, but this was, you know, when we talk about that album for you, this was kind of the first album as a kid discovering music that this is like spoke to me as kind of a weird, emo kid with crushes and feelings and had no idea how to express them. And this was kind of the first album that basically said, write this stuff down, get it out. You're, it's okay to do that. It's okay to write stupid poetry and give it to a girl or it's, it's okay to write this stuff. And if your mom finds it, you know, provide it's not a suicide letter spray painted on the wall, you know? <laughs> um, but it's one of those where it was like, you can write these kinds of thoughts. You can have these kinds of feelings and this is okay to get this stuff out. And, as this kind of manifested itself into my life um, you know I I was one of those kids where as as I got I think I was 15 and I was going on I basically there was a there was a videotape that was released with this album that did it all the videos and then it did interviews it did footage and three videos it had all the videos for one there were three separate videos for one Um, and I see like Bono has both of his ears pierced so like watching that tape I got right up and I grabbed a needle and I went I pierced both of my ears at home by myself. <laughs> like, um, I was like, Oh, okay. Ouch. I did check. <laughs> no, it didn't, it wasn't that bad. I, I, I dealt with it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I found, I found like a pair of fly glasses that almost mimicked his glasses like perfectly. And I wore those and I didn't even care that people recognized them kind of a thing. You know, um, I was not very subtle, about my teenage obsession with that album, <laughs> let me put it that way. I didn't, I didn't walk around in like black shiny leather. Let's not go crazy here. Um, but I just, I looked at it and they were just kind of like the coolest motherfuckers on the planet at the time, and they acted like it. They, they were like actual like, act, like rock stars to me, and I did, had no iteration of who they were prior, so I couldn't, I didn't really get the act that Bono was putting on with the fly. I went back and got it, and so it's like, okay, It was being ironic. Um. But they were just kind of the exact opposite of what I joked about when I would go through my brother's cassette collection and I would hold the Joshua Tree and I I couldn't tell the difference between them and Fleetwood Mac kind of. Um, but the the album just kind of got me to kind of explore that darker emo side of my teenager years and um, I, and like I said, I don't really care how uncool they are now or what they become. That's that's the you two that you know I always will have with me is just that dark era, trippy era. Um, songwriting and but it does it really you get these kind of lackadaisical tracks like Zusation, even better than the real thing and um, the fly which I actually think probably should have been their lead off track for this album Um, you have mysterious ways but then you have these really just gut wrenching dark you know kind of inward looking songs like one um, which is supposedly about a, a, a son telling his father he has AIDS which I don't I've never really got that, but that's what they say it's about. And that's, of course, gone on to be, you know, one of the most famous songs ever. You have um, Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, which, again, is kind of this weird lackadaisical phrase that shouldn't exist. But then you hear the song and it really the way it works and how it talks about just, you know, being screwed over. And then you have So Cruel, which is in my top five favorite U2 songs of all time and I know Jeff that's kind of a head scratch to you but it's one of these songs where the music just arrives there's no guitar in it there's no real anything but it's just like a symphony that's just it's like on a wave and it doesn't it gets high emotionally but it's not it's one of the most unmusically U2 songs out there Um, trying to throw your arms around the world is, is just one of those um you hear the drum loops in this, you know, at the beginning where it's almost like a record scratch. Like they're throwing in these elements Mm -hmm. of, you know, club and hip hop. Um, Ultraviolet My Way, I think, is probably their most underrated song in their entire career. It's tucked like on the back of the album. Um, But the way that song just takes off and the way the chorus goes and just keeps going and then Bono will come in over the chorus and just kind of yell out these primal things like you think he's yelling at the moon almost Um, and then of course like on most U2 albums this ends just dark it ends on acrobat and it ends on love is blindness and you're kind of just so emotionally spent after listening to it that that that's not how you're supposed to feel after listening to a U2 album (laughs) you're not supposed to kind of feel like you just went through an entire dysfunctional relationship front to back A lot of that came from at the time edge was going through a divorce of his long-term wife and that's where a lot of that comes from that was bono channeling a lot of what was happening with the edge's personal life um and so his experiences uh come in real heavy on that but also you talk about clayton clayton's base on this is also so subtle but it's like almost the underlying thing of every single song on the, on the track um, and the thing that you notice listening to it is just that screechy guitar is gone. It's like the edge. It's like part of him died with that. Um, it's almost non-existent. It's it's changed into that, you know, that blah, 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 blah with Mysterious Ways. And then, of course, the fly. Um, and then one, I mean, could anybody actually do the guitar the guitar from one like off of memory I'm not saying playing I'm saying just could you harmonize mm-hmm. it? not a lot of people could um, it's such a deceptively complicated song but it's so simple with just these um, the way it opens with just the drumsticks and then it ramps up um, so I thought the other thing that that was interesting um, is th- talking about the club, the, the, the club sounds is that there's some stuff that's like could be great right out of the Happy Mondays are on this or Jesus Jones. Um so it presets a lot of these trends that you saw in the nineties again. Um and the other thing that made a precedent real fast and then I'll stop obsessing over it, um was it was it's it got to this point to where u two was ahead of the curve musically. And this is where I think they came about in the nineties. Even with how creatively imperfect Pop was in Zeropa, they were ahead of the curve. They, this was the beginning of CNN on TV showing war footage and media saturation. And this is kind of how Zoo TV became this thing with 450 monitors and you're just now being berated with imagery and that's kind of where this all started and it hasn't stopped with the invention of social yeah, it's like, where we are right now right? Yeah, it's, it's the obnoxiousness of a 24 7 style of media and that's kind of the themes that they took on with Zoo TV um, and then visually this is where they started working with Anti- um, Anton Corbin where it was to create this visual aspect of the band that didn't exist it was mainly blacks and whites and is in their videos now um, in, one, in, in the first video, for one, you know, the band is cross-dressing where Bono is sitting on a bench and then each member of the band is cross-dressing, just sitting next to him. So they're exploring these kind of arti- deeper artistic themes um, that you don't expect from Americana U2. Like all of a sudden you're watching a video and there's Larry Mullen in a dress. <laughs> you're kind of like, okay. Um, and even for a teenager, it wasn't jarring to me. It was just like, wow, this is this is art. You know, in the Beavis and Butthead style voice where Beavis and, but- <laughs> Beavis and Butthead, <laughs> Beavis and Butthead famously lampooned the Buffalo video, where uh, <laughs> it cuts in and Be, you know, Butt goes, "This is art. This is supposed to mean something." <laughs> and it's like those are buffalo, um, and so they got very serious. But it was like this one of their most unserious like titles for the album. You had Octune Baby, like you know, Caution Baby, but it's almost their most seriously impersonal uh, artistic album. The B sides, I think, Lady of the Spinning Head should have been put on this album, although it. It differences creativity. It has that screechy guitar. Um, yeah, that's a, that's my whole spiel on Octoon Baby, and I'll let you guys now go away, and I'll let you guys talk about it for the next 45 minutes.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, everybody everybody agrees this album is fantastic. I mean, once again, once upon a time, I tried to, to tell people in my more uh, depressing and regrettable college days, that like, oh, this is actually not good. This is a terrible record. What the hell did I know? This is a fantastic record. And in fact... I don't think there is, and this is rare because on every U2 album you can say, yeah, okay, you know, great there's a lot of great songs, this, that but there's also these really crappy songs mm-hmm. there are no bad songs on Octoon Baby what I think is really though fascinating for me and, and this, this keys off of what you were just saying Stephen, about how um, you know, listening to one, hey, how do you play that guitar you know, line on it they released a boxed set not too long ago it was like a five CD, like <clears throat> exploratory, you, you know, Octune Baby slash Zuropa, because these all came from the same basic sessions, um, with, which had an entire early alternate version of Akhtung baby basically the original tracks as they recorded them as their their studio takes and you hear a song like one and it's just the edge playing these very simple acoustic guitar chords and then all that stuff was mixed out bono's original vocals you know uh you know the bass and rhythm the rhythm section the bass and the drums are retained but everything else is re-recorded and everything was dropped out <clears throat> and you have that really subtle electric guitar are very well finger-picked, flat-picked stuff that you hear on the song. They really worked this stuff over almost impeccably in the studio, and there is no greater example of that than um, one of my dark horse picks on this record. Of course, this album has so many famous songs, even better than the real thing, Mysterious Ways. One, you've heard all these songs. Um, One of them, very few that you might not have heard, is Trying to Throw Your Arms Around the World. Mm Mm-hmm which I absolutely adore. Um, It has that woozy 3 a.m., walking home, drunk, maybe high. You're not really sure what you did. You're not really proud of what you did. It reminds me a lot about Sunday Morning by The Velvet Underground. Same basic vibe. And uh, the song has that, you know, it opens with these, you know, sort of like, you know, very faintly heard arpeggiated guitar lines and you know those faint drums that sound sampled or maybe again recorded down the hallway and then these soothing synthesizers come in and it's just so beautifully atmospheric. you go back and you listen to the original version that they did and it has all these rather goofy and gauche acoustic guitars and it sounds like a dumb folk song and it's still the same rhythm master they completely changed these songs in the remixing and the overdubbing which just tells you how much work was put into this record and It was all for the better, really, because, again, nothing on this is bad. You know, I will say one other thing that this might make my top five. It's tough. I have like eight songs that I've shortlisted for my top five. Uh, The other one that I really love the most there, there are so many. Until the end of the world, which is basically Jesus and Judas having a conversation with each other in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's amazing. But the one that really screams to me is The Fly. This was the first single they released from the album. And again, this is back. It's so hard to remember nowadays when U2 is dead rock but this was so brave the last thing you ever heard from u2 was rattle and hum it was them doing when love comes to town blues rock with bb king and desire and all i want is you and stuff that you basically expected from u2 and then all of a sudden here's this and it begins with a do doo 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 do 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 and then these industrial drums and this repetitive edge groove that I think that's where the title came from, The Fly, because it sounded like it was a fly buzzing in your ears. And the thing about it uh, that most impresses me is that, you know, what we talk about when we talk about Bono after the Joshua Tree era is that when he was on tour with that album and touring Rattle and Hum, uh, uh, kind of a devastating thing happened to him. And I guess this is what happens when you're not a trained vocalist and you're just going out there and just doing what you think you're supposed to do without any proper preparation, he shot out his vocal cords. He shot them out permanently. Those incredible soaring high notes that you heard on songs like A sort of Homecoming or even I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, With or Without You, he would never be able to really reach them in the same way again. His doctors told him this. He said, listen, you're going to become a mute if you keep carrying on this way so he had to adjust and come up with a completely different vocal style and what you hear on Ah akhtung baby is that different vocal approach and it isn't just him singing in his lower registers which you hear on the fly you know it's no secret it's no secret uh but it's also on those falsettos Oh, God, I love those falsettos so much. You'll, you'll hear them again on, on my favorite YouTube song of all time on the next album. But, you know, love, we shine like a burning star. We're falling from the sky tonight. And then another Bono comes in and says, A man will rise, a man will fall on the sheer face of love like a fly on the wall. I love the sound. I love Edge's guitar solo over top of it. But most of all, I love the adaptation to very trying circumstances. Bono was told he was stripped of his most powerful instrument. That's got to hurt. How do you handle that? And he adjusted. And he adjusted, I think, in just such an admirable and brilliant way. And so that's what Akatung Baby means to me. It means the fly. It means that adaptation to a completely different way of making music successful.
0: album. That's not a controversial opinion, but from top to bottom, Jeff, I think Jeff mentioned, look, there's not a bum track on uh, on Octoon Baby. And in fact, uh, many of the uh, album tracks are better than the singles, which are pretty good in and of themselves. Um, of the singles, look, even better than the real thing. which is Second track on the album. That cascading guitar riff that uh, The Edge plays just as the chorus is starting. That's one of, I think, the moments of the album. It's a totally different kind of guitar tone. It just sets the mood. Some real tension in the melody of that song. Good one there. Um, Until the End of the World, which which Jeff just mentioned too, that's a fantastic song uh this buzzsaw edge guitar uh Jeff just talked about the, the kind of deeper more textured vocals you hear from Bono all over this album especially on that and that song um and, and it's still a very dancey beat behind it too And this the lyrics about Jesus and Judas and the, and the pain of disloyalty for both sides in uh, in that sort of arrangement until the end of the world is is one of the really great U2 songs Um, and then there's the stretch late uh, trying to throw your arms around the world love that song ultraviolet that Stephen praised is just fantastic there's this huge key change right before the last verse that shoves the song into overdrive Um, and then just after that, acrobat is just outstanding. I love Acrobat. Real desperation in Bono's voice, uh, manic edge solo in Acrobat, and it really goes through the emotional spectrum uh, through the course of that song. And Larry Mullen, his drums are, are just popping on Acrobat, playing in the in the spaces that the edge leaves uh, as he's playing his guitar. That stretch is fantastic. When
3: I first met you, girl, you had five.
0: Mysterious Ways is a great single, and and completely um, unexpected in terms of what the sound was, and and what you would expect from U2, and that's now one of their one of their you know timeless tracks. Mysterious Ways is still one of those that play is played on the radio all the time. Um, you know, Zoo Station, which kicks off the album, they they said they wanted people when they put put the album on to think either something is wrong with this record or cassette or, or whatever, or uh, or this is not you too, right? They wanted people to be completely taken aback by what they heard on Octung Baby, and that's why Zoo Station led things off. And I think what what followed is just an amazing, a, a really amazing reinvention of the band's sound. You know, I know that. Uh, Uh, into this era, you know, the rhythm section was concerned about where they would stand in in this new uh, era of U2, and man, oh man! If anything, if anything, they're they're highlighted not just on Octung Baby," but on 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 the albums to come. They are just they're, Larry Mullen and Adam Adam Clayton are just playing out of their minds. And that rhythm, that new sense of rhythm, that new sense
3: of
1: when you turn into a dance band, guess what? The yes. rhythm section right. matters. So, like, yes, that's not a surprise. Yeah, and even if you're yet. using
0: you know some some sequencing or some some you know programmed, those have to be recreated for for live. Um, performances and even on those songs when some of those new techniques are used uh generally it's kind of a you know it's kind of a weave in and out where you still hear the, the actual guys playing their instruments as well um but yeah, yeah. so cruel is great uh, the fly uh, again th- there is not a weak track on Octung baby and it's, it's the album that turned me on to you too because if it were just the joshua tree sitting out there uh probably wouldn't be having this conversation today
2: and it's really funny because it's the album where what, you, what I always hear from people is, oh, I like the old U2. Like, it's, they're, they're always like, I didn't really get what they were doing. I, I like the old U2. My U2 is, you know, the old U2. You heard this a lot, not so much anymore, um, but that was always the argument with them. And this is what I mean about how they picked up fans. I didn't know the old U2. All I knew was, you know, what I was watching in front of me. And, and then, of course, how the accompanying concert which mind you i saw before any of this so i had to basically go back and watch all the concert footage and i I still remember being like 15 and being like i can't believe i sat down for half of the show (laughs) (laughs) um but and that's i mean you go back and they had the live version from sydney australia and this is where bono started to bring on the mephisto character where he called the white house and he actually got through one time to, to bush um he used to always in one of the encores he uh He would try. He would try to actually call the White House, and he called it every night. And he would get the switchboard and switchboard, and and then one time George Bush actually picked up the phone (laughs) because he knew about this. So he's like, "I guess he talked to him." Um, But this is where you you two just got into the theatrics of rock stardom. It was kind of they were playing this whole thing up. And I don't think people really got it at the time, but I think people get it now. Like I said, with just media saturation and how m- media exploits people, and which is a lot of what The Fly is about, um, and how... You know you don't have to believe everything that you see and uh they for zoo tv they flashed all of these like messages on the screen and one was everything you know is wrong and for a 15 year old kid who had a problem with authority that was just (laughs) (laughs) you just have these guys out and it was really interesting how bono basically Said, "Listen, if you're going to call me the most pompous rock star in the world, I'm just going to play into that." So he created this character in the fly, where he said, "You know, he had Roy Orbison's glasses, he had uh, Elvis Presley's hair, he had David Bowie's clothes. You know, he had Motown. You know, Motown's uh, platform shoes, and that was kind of the whole point behind that." And it's really interesting because you get into now when they get into Zero Open Pop Mart where it almost feels like he's just doing his own thing with that where the band is kind of not really interested. <laughs> They're kind of like just Bono's just doing his thing. And they, they lampoon that on The Simpsons even when they appeared on The Simpsons and Pop That's Mart right. and yes. uh, Homer comes in as the, as the garbage collector and everyone starts booing him and Bono goes he's, hold on a minute. He's talking about waste management. And the, and the band goes, oh god, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you feel like he was off doing his own thing and the band kind of just went along with it because they, they've they known the guy since he was 20 years old. He's like, no, he's just doing his Jagger thing. He's just 20 years older now doing it. But it was the whole spectacle of it where you, it was such a paradox in music where you had this, like I said, this kind of gut-wrenching, these dark gut-wrenching style songs Um, And on top of that, you had this completely lackadaisical persona to go along with it. And it just confused the hell out of everybody. Um, And it's not something that works if the music isn't there, which we learned with, you know, later on with pop. And, um, yeah, it's, I think, like, going back, Jeff, what you said about his falsetto, and this is why I think So Cruel is so good, is... It's this it's where he's just kind of going along with the music. It's one of these songs to me where it's not Bono leading it. It's the music that is leading him. Um and there's no real there's, you know, there's choruses and there's things like this, but it's just it's like a constant wave. There's no there, it you know, it's it's not crashing high, it's not going low. It's just this stream of music and Bono's actually playing to the music in that track And where he brings up that falsetto right before he says, You stay in love, there are no rules. Um and that to me is why that track is so good and it's one of those where i know people it's not the most popular but it's one of those i basically demand people go back and listen to <laughs> um, i think it's like almost six minutes long it's the longest track on the album um but that's what it feels like it feels like that that's just the end of that and then you cut right back into the fly Um, and I think the fly was like the first side of the uh of the cassette. I think it was so you you would end with so cruel turn the tape over, you go, Whew, okay. Turn the tape over, there's the fly and it's like, All right, now we're back. Um and then of course it ends with love is blindness, nothing matters, we're all gonna die. <laughs>
1: Speaking of people not understanding where Bonham was going and everybody being wrong, I'm going to insist that both of you people are completely wrong about the next two albums of U2's discography. And it feels like we should sort of take them together because they are of a piece. And the irony of that is that Zuropa, the next album, uh, is actually of a piece with Achtung Baby. It, it was recorded. Constructed mostly of outtakes from the sessions, a couple new tracks and things like that. Um, And it was released during the middle of the Octung Baby tour. I think they actually probably rushed it to get it out so that, you know, by the end of the tour, as they were going around the world and back again, they'd have something more to do. Um, And then after that, pop from 1997 which uh, ironically enough until until you know you know u2 albums started getting unwittingly downloaded onto people's ipods and the iphones was the least loved album of their career these are the unloved red-headed stepchildren of the u2 discography i think both of them are excellent albums in particular i really want to say some praise For Zuropa, which has the single best song on the entire history of U2, in my opinion, which may sound strange because it's actually one of the most uncharacteristic songs of their career. And that song is Lemon. Lemon could be a Brian Eno song by any other name. In fact, his voice features so prominently in it that. It's kind of hard not to think of it as like a collaboration. U2 featuring Brian Eno, the way it would be labeled on like, you know, uh, you know a top 40 singles chart. But this is as far as U2 ever wandered away from the mainstream. And yet it was a single and it is one of the most magnificent triumphs of the 1990s in general. A pounding dance track, a pounding dance track about, again, you know, the kind of Kind of subjects that Radiohead would later become famous for dealing with, but that you two got to first, and I think did equally as good of a job with. You know, a man builds a city with banks and cathedrals. A man melts the sand so he can see the world outside. You know, you know conflating you know obsession with a woman, a, a mysterious, impossible woman, with the sort of decay of late stage capitalism, and then it all comes to a, a climax with that brilliant last last lyric where and these are the days when our work has come asunder and these are the days when we look for something other And then Bono just sails, sails up into that beautiful, soaring falsetto. And the piano line just steps up and down, up and down the scale. And then, you know, Eno sings underneath it, Midnight is where the day begins. What is that song about? Is that song about, you know, you know, Capitalist decadence Is that song about Some sort of mysterious female Is that song about Bono working out His own personal demons I don't know You can read it Three separate different ways I just think it's a masterpiece I actually think Almost all of this album Is excellent There's literally one song on it That I don't like And that's Babyface The second song on the record It's not bad It's just not great But everything else Including the song That the Edge sings Numb That's a great song no don't move, don't love talk dunk. out of time Right, yeah I think that's great, that was an outtake from "Achtung Baby That was originally like Bono singing on it And then Edge said like, you know listen, Like I, I got something else here And he just sings it like in that monotone That monotone that's perfect And if you've ever seen the video, it's great. hilarious All yeah. Edge
2: Background or while well, Bono's in the background going like
1: that with the right, right, <laughs> all the band members appear and like models start licking him in the face and he's actually like uncomfortable. It's so funny. It's a funny video, a very memorable video, one of those classic early '90s moments. <laughs>
3: Don't theorize, realize, polarize, glance, dance, dismiss, apologize Don't spy, don't lie, don't try, apply the not start again Don't drive, don't coax, don't cling, don't hoax, don't beat, beat, don't leap, don't, leap, don't speak Anyways,
1: everybody hates Zouropa. I don't. Why is everyone so wrong? Can either of you two answer
0: this for me? I I actually don't hate Zouropa. I do hate pop. Um, Well, you're
3: wrong about that,
0: too! (laughs) (laughs) But I think Zouropa is... um at least an int- I don't want to say it. it's better than an interesting failure, but I, I, I do think it succeeds on a number of, of levels, and I think it's it's better than pop. Uh, this is another album where they were, they were going to make it an EP, and they said, we'll make it a full album. They went down to the deadline. They're mixing things as the deadline is approaching, and virtually every album in retrospect, some member of U2 says, uh, man, really if we, in, if, we it it time, right. if we just had more time, if we just had more time, it'd be so much better. Uh, and so they say that about Zuropa and they say that about pop, but, um, i actually th- i i like Zuropa better now than i did when i i first heard it back in the in the 90s and there are some real highs uh num i i like num from the time it was a single I, and it's one of those that is pretty un u like i mean edge writes the 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 lyrics which he apparently did in a very short amount of time and there's not much there's not much to it there's a whole bunch of don't commands but uh really f- focusing on the sensory overload kind of Theme that would run through the the Zoo TV tour and, and a lot of Zoo Europa. Um, Some days are better than others is not the strongest set of lyrics from uh, from uh, from Bono, but it's a nice track. Um, I, I, this I, I will agree with him. I think maybe more time on this song might have had a better result. It's got a great buzzing edge solo to it, very funky rhythm to it. Uh, Stay um, far away, so close is is kind of um, an aberration of the album it's not quite in line with the, it's kind of like you know pride from Unfor- unforgettable fire I think stay kind of sticks out as being a little different kind of a tin pan so progression but it's such a
1: welcome aberration it is that that, that, that lyric where it just is like green light 711 you're stopping for a pack of cigarettes but you don't even smoke <laughs> <laughs> it's just so oh, I just love that whole and also there's another one where Adam Clayton On the bass,
0: man. I mean he just that it's driven by that bass. Well, yeah, the bass and the drums, it's got a combo sound to it. The drums are, are recorded very dry. Today's a great song. I I I love the the closing track, which is the Wanderer, where Johnny Cash takes the vocals. And I, I guess they you know they tried Bono and they had Johnny. And this is this is remember before the all the American recordings that Johnny Cash Johnny Cash was not, uh, hip and with it and and working with Rick Rubin at this point. And they bring him in to record The Wanderer, which is a really great amalgam of all these things, the new and the old. You know, the Johnny Cash old voice with some new technology. It has this synthetic kind of rubbery bass line of right. uh, these old-time kind of 50s-esque backing vocals. And you get this, this very tinny, drum sound, and then, and then Johnny Cash singing lyrics like, and I, I just love this. Um, do you I'm, know
1: what I love the most about The Wanderer? is the fact that Bono doesn't even appear on it. Yeah. It's just Bono, Johnny Cash.
0: You keep waiting for Bono to come
2: in. Nope. He never does. He, comes he never in,
1: does. It's just Johnny he Cash.
2: The, he just does that falsetto in the background. Right. Uh, he just pops in there. Yeah, and that's he, the
1: kind of thing that you could, you too Bonner,
2: could do oh. at that time, because there were superstars. <laughs> <laughs> waiting the whole song for Bono, and he never comes in. It's just, yep. here's, here's Johnny Cash, ladies and gentlemen.
0: The, the thing, I mean, Cash singing, I went out there in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. That's a perfect Johnny Cash verse, uh, you know, written for him uh, by Botto. I, 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 it's one of my favorite U2 closing tracks uh, on an album. I went out there in search of
3: experience to taste and to touch feel as much as a man can before he repents.
0: here is just, I'm sorry, Edge's guitar here is just drenched. It affects all over the place. It's, uh, I I don't deem it a complete success. I don't think it's terrible. I like it better now than I did say, what, 20 years ago? And again, as I mentioned earlier, as with any album from YouTube, there are real highlights, Numb and Stay, and I think The Wanderer fits that. The first time is pretty darn good, too. Um, so, And then I know we're going to take these together, so I'll just mention Pop, and then, and then Steven can dump on Pop if he wants to. Um, the second half of that album really, really falls off in my mind. I mean, uh, Miami doesn't do it for me. Uh, Playboy Mansion, no. No. Um, If You Wear That Velvet Dress is just the slow slog. Wrong, wrong, wrong,
1: wrong! If You Wear That
0: Velvet Dress is one of
1: the best songs of their career. (laughs) So wrong. Oh, God.
0: The first half, though, I like staring at the sun, which is a little more of a classic U2 uh, sound. The Edge plays guitar distorted through a, a, a... uh, a speaker that's designed for an organ, and that's what gives it that unique, really nice uh, m- sound to it. It's just great. Uh, gone has a great piano melody, and I like I like Disco Tech. I was I was uh, not to get too personal, guys. I was singing it in the shower this morning, or humming it in the shower this morning, and uh, and it, it, it merged. So I don't know if it's kind of like a twisted, but you know the the Daft Punk song, Punk song, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, that that big edge riff on Disco Tech. It's Listen, kind of yeah, Scott out you're so Death conscious Punk. it doesn't lie to you I'm telling you I mean, it, <laughs> it must be true it must it be must true it must be good <laughs> it's true um, Yeah, I, 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 I think this is a weaker batch of songs, and and you know as much as it is kind of the the pop dance disco ball album, that's really only the first half. It, it's the second half that isn't even kind of in that realm that disappoints me more than that first half. Stephen?
2: Yeah, I looked at I mean, Zeropa was kind of my again when I talk about your first follow up, and I listened to it. And I was I liked it. Uh, um, I was a little perplexed by it at the time, but I was like, okay, I'm I'm into this. It felt it feel, feels a lot shorter than it is. Um, which I think is the best thing about it. It doesn't feel overly long. It doesn't feel like it's bloated you know, with anything. It's just it is just these kind of short pop songs. Other than you do have Lemon is in there at mm-hmm. seven minutes, um, but it does again feel like it feels like exactly what they did with Rattle and Hum, where they took a they took a smashing success off of what they were doing, then said let's throw something together real fast. Just let's keep throwing new material. They basically wrote this album while they were still on tour and they they were basically flying from their tour stops to the studio and then flying back to their tour stops. Yes. Um, so the, the this was kind of like U 2s like frantic Coke, uh, phase, even though they didn't really do drugs. It's like just them doing poppers and just being like, yep, yep. We got more stuff to do. We got more stuff to do. Um, and so like, I love Zeropa's the opening track. And again, you had to really look at this album through the, through the lens of what they were doing live because Bono creates this character named Mephisto, to do a live show which is kind of like a vanity devil and this feels like this album feels like it was just came out of that it was kind of like we have this a total concept album um and that but that was the problem is the persona overtook i think what the music was doing which is exactly the problem with rattle and hum um stayed far away so close is my favorite track out the album i think it's one of their better tracks post joshua tree um, I thought it could have maybe fit on Octoon baby yes it would it, it wouldn 't have stuck out as much if it was on that album. Um, the one the song that you guys haven 't talked about is my favorite is the first time, which is just this simple you know edge with a with a simple melody and then it 's just Bono with the guitars again and he there 's no real heavy emotion in it 's just him kind of reading a poem again similar to running uh, running to stand still
3: and there are many rooms to see. But I left by the back door and I threw away the key. And I threw away the key. Yeah, I threw.
2: I think this this was... Jeff brings up Lemon. It's not my favorite. I
1: think I think Lemon is just Bono
2: trying to be David Bowie.
1: And you could take... it once, his, I'm, his, I'm actually willing to say this, and I'm one of the biggest Bowie fans on the planet. If that was a David Bowie fan, if that was a David Bowie song, that would be one of David Bowie's best ever maybe, songs. But,
2: but that's the thing. You can take Lemon, especially just the structure of it is David Bowie to me. Like, just the the... And then, of course, when you add the video, which is like the graph, and then Bono's doing his character, you could replace Bono's Mephisto in that video with David Bowie, and it'd be an infinitely better song. And I think that that's the whole thing about that song. I don't hate Lemon. But it's just to me, it's just Bono's like, I'm David Bowie. This is what I'm doing here. But this again goes back to whenever you two tries to be somebody else, they don't quite pull it off as well as the people are trying to do, which is why I think it's like they let Johnny Cash do the wander. Because that is that is top to bottom a Johnny Cash song with a distorted pedal guitar behind it. Um and yeah i'll i'll just i have a couple of thoughts on pop i mean pop is just U two's full village people at this point (laughs) um i think it's really insulting as an album because they started bringing in these sampling and these loops and program drum machines and like i said i think they they thought they could do this stuff better than like you said scott uh, daft punk or moby at the time yeah um and it turns out that they couldn't they can't because you know even though you think you can you It's like, oh, this is easy. Let's just start doing some drum loops. And then you learn "Eh, it's not that easy to do. Um, But I will say this about pop. Um, It was so musically ahead of the curve about what pop music itself was becoming. Um, I mean, you had u two come out with this, and then of course the tour was kind of like the Titanic of u two extravaganzas—the <laughs> giant disco lemon—and um, I saw that. I actually saw that show in the, from the third row, and Rage Against the Machine opened for them to give you an idea. Um, but it was such a different the way I, the way I justified seeing them live with that, even though I didn't really get the concept was at least they're still going to play their old tracks. They're just going to do it while Bono is shaved head with a muscle shirt I guess. Um, (laughs) But they were so ahead of what pop music was doing because shortly after they do this, Cher comes out with her electronic album. Madonna comes out with Ray of Light and even now that this is pretty much what pop music is with just these constant samples and loops and stuff and yep. i won't give them full credit for you know doing that but they were just ahead of. they saw where music
0: was and, going. and even the stuff on yeah. zuropa uh, the stuff on Zeropa reminds me a lot of what you'd hear from say like garbage which was about two years right. out at that point but that kind of yeah. light industrial feel uh that yeah. garbage kind of perfected. There's, there's a lot of it on Zeropa too and I,
2: I feel like, um, I think I did this with Oasis with Be Here Now. If I'm U2, I never release Pop or Zaropa. Um I instead combine them for like a good follow-up talk tune. So out of that, I would include and, um If God was sent his angels, which is my favorite track off of uh, Pop, I did a I have a story about that. It's a little long, but basically I, I did a music video for that when I was in film school. I'd, I'd gotten out of high school. I was in film school. I had a week. I was working with two partners that I couldn't work with. Um, so I went to my instructor and I said, you know, can I go off and just do my own thing? Will you let me? And he's like, yeah, but you know, you have a week. Um, and so what, if it passes or fails, it's all on you. And I was like, that's fine. That's cool. Cause I had such this visual idea for a music video for God would send his angels that I, I did it. I got my girlfriend at the time. and surrounded her like with candles and I had a whole basement that darkened out. I blacked it out. Um, and then I used like spray paint. Um, I had candles protecting her from various weapons and then I had spray paint. So I was spraying at her, and the spray paint would come out green and different colors and stuff like that. And so I did this whole concept where it's kind of protecting you, the light's protecting you kind of thing. Love and light and light and love. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up winning Best Overall Project because of just, I, I had such a clear concept of the beat of this song to the concept of how <laughs> I do it. I played with strobes, I played with. Um, different kinds of lighting, I played with camera effects, which we were told not to do but to give you an idea of how I was in film school um, and I ended up winning best overall project and, and i did i edit I shot it in one day I edited it in a second, and this was when everything was analog folks this was
1: stephen is, is this your is this your equivalent of Al Bundy talking about how he saw no. three touchdowns <laughs> no, 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 in, in his high school, not school not football, football game no because
2: i 'm only getting better as an artist <laughs>
1: uh, okay.
2: but if like i said if I'm YouTube, i 'm you 2 i don 't really release. These two albums. I release one album that has Zeropa and um, and a few of the B-sides on there that I don't want to spoil. Um, Stay Far Away So Close, Staring at the Sun, The First Time, Gone, Dirty Day, Lemon and Please. That would be one album that I would release with this concept. And then I would have gone away and dreamed it all up again, as they stated. But I I think it's just musically, it's a mess. Pop, pop is a mess. Europa, I'm fine with. I kinda like what Scott said. It's an interesting failure, I think is a good way of putting that. It's a very listenable album. Um, but it just feels her it feels exactly like what it is. It feels hurried, it feels unfinished, it feels like they are playing with concepts they didn't really understand. Um, and I think pop is just the it's their rattle and hum of the nineties. <laughs> they just took everything and said, Let's just blow it up, you know, let's do that's what let's do what we're doing and i was really actually shocked at like how the band went that direction it felt like bono and edge were pushing them they were just like yeah screw it i'm you know adam clayton takes the stage wearing an orange prison jumpsuit and a and a gas mask and they're like yeah let's just do it you know <laughs> I mean, whatever it's not boring that's the thing it's, it wasn't you know americana country what they do what they were doing definitely was not boring um it just felt like I mean pop to me feels like Oasis is be here now. It's
1: you know, every track Oh no. Yeah. Are you saying track, there's a giant bag of cocaine slightly every, off every stage? It's
2: too long, it's too overly produced, it's not it's not pulling off what it's set out to do. That's not to say there aren't good, you know, discotech for for all of its problems. It's still a good, you know, has that You know guitar hook on it if god would send its angel staring at the sun gone is a really underrated track on this album that is awesome live Mm -hmm. when they do the song live without the the stick it's amazing when he does the guitar um the rest of it i just i think he could take it or leave it um yeah, that's pretty, pretty much all I really kind of have to say about that. It's All
1: right. Well, then if that's all you have to say, then halt because then I will add to that. Do you feel loved? Mofo. If God will send his angels, I would add if you wear that velvet dress, please. And wake up dead, man. There's literally one or two songs on this record that I don't like. <laughs> Miami, mm, Playboy Mansion. They actually kind of seem to sort of you know, partake but in you the like same. It mean it's <laughs> No, actually, it does. My taste is impeccable. I'm sorry. This, this. Guess why I'm the host of this show, Stephen? Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, the thing about pop is that everybody hates it. You hate it. Scott doesn't like it. The critics have never liked it. It's treated as a joke. Even the band doesn't like it at this point. I don't i don't know i mean you've seen them do they play any of these songs live anymore they still play gone um but the they wanted to
2: re-record it after um i think it was after how did dismantle an atomic bomb
1: i mean that that's why when they did the best of uh you know they those two best of albums 1980 to 1990 and then they did the 1990 to 2000 uh every single version of a song that was taken from pop was like a remix
2: yeah the disco or a different version a re-recorded disco and discotech live where they strip away the electronica and then it's edge with his guitar is incredible like it's
1: yeah but you know what i'm going to tell you right now i think these songs are already pretty incredible as they are and this is for me the moment where you 2 kind of ends as a creative force everybody will say nice things about all that you can't leave behind, which we're about to get to, and that kind of wraps up, sort of a, the final era of U2 wraps up the show. Everybody will say nice things about that album, but to me, that album, even at the time when I heard it, it depressed me a little bit because I recognized it as a retrenchment. This is the last time they actually strove to be different, and in my opinion, I think they succeeded. And I don't just say you liked "Gone." "Gone" is great, but boy. I don't know why people don't talk more about Mofo. Um, uh, That is a really kind of coruscating, nasty dance riff that works. I'll tell you another one that I really think I that people don't talk about enough. And you already told me that you didn't like it, but I love it. Is if you wear that velvet dress, uh, Mm -hmm. a song about that tension, you know, in Bono's life, you know, about, you know, you know, sex and, uh, you know. Temptation on the road, and his marriage, and so the emptiness of these sorts of hookups. Uh, I, I love the ambient, the sort of slow burn, candlelight nature of that song. It's okay. Still- What people don't like about this album is that it's minor, intentionally minor. Discotech has those hooks, yes, um, you know, Gone has those hooks, but the rest of these songs are, are cameos. They're smaller. It's it's a band that calls itself pop, but is actually playing to a sort of a lower key emotional valence. And I think it works. I think it was really brave. For the biggest band in the world, after zoo t v and all that to go do this, and of course it failed immensely, I mean, I mean it sold obviously because anything you t- you two could have put out an album of them, just like going to the bathroom and having diarrhoea, and it would have sold um but it obviously got raked over the coals, and so what that brings us to is all that you can't leave behind. Um, which oh, everybody I mention,
0: loves. Mention one thing real quick. Hold, yeah. me, hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me from the Batman yeah. Forever soundtrack. You know,
1: I, I don't even like that album. It's kind of dirty, kind of nice, dirty I riff. Lo- I love
0: edge, that dirty but... riff. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Keep going. And it was able, it kind of,
2: you know, was the bridge song. And u two's done that with a lot of their in between material. They kind of have one or two songs that, you know, bridge into what they're going to do. One was, um, one that we forgot to mention was a song, uh, was the song "Mercy" from Joshua Tree into "Octune Baby," um, which is uh, one that you should just go online and see because you still have Bono kind of acting like Joshua Tree Bono, but with the uh, with the sound of um, Octune Baby, and so it's really crazy. And that's what kind of what "Hold Me Through Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me" did. It was kind of a bridge between what they were doing with Octune Baby into pop. And then there's another one grab beneath their feet which uh we'll go into later but yeah
1: um so, so here's the thing though uh, everybody thought well you two i remember well when i bought that that it was right before i went to college pop was like you two became a punchline for the first time in the career even rattling home people were like oh, i'm not so i'm not so certain about this crap but uh they weren't a punchline with pop people are like they're they're over they're done it's over they're sold And then they went and did All You Can't Leave Behind, which everybody says is like you two kind of reclaiming their classic sound, gaining back their fans. I mean, I think even Bono said, like, you know, we had to re-audition for the role of best band in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the mythology behind this. But this is
2: every time they they, they kind of you know, piss off the masses, then they come back and they're usually better for it.
1: Well, but the thing is, and this is the moment I bought this album. This is the last U2 album I bought at the time it was released. And I remember I got through the first two songs. Song number one, Beautiful Day. Um, It's like obviously the anthemic epic. I don't like it. I've never liked it. I think it's just a few riffs in search of a song. And then I got the Stuck in a Moment You Can't Get Out of, and that is a genuinely great song. And I would actually argue it's the last great song they ever wrote, truly. It's a solid song from a you know songwriting perspective. You, know, you have your verse, you have your middle eight, you have your chords. Uh, but then the rest of this album felt to me depressing. I was just like, well, they've stopped trying to be new. They've stopped trying to be different. They've stopped trying to innovate. They're just going back to give the people what they want as the kinks might say everyone else likes this album and considers it in fact most people say this is their last truly great album I don't I think pop was their last mm. truly great album and I think this is really the beginning of the end for them And I, other than stuck in a moment which I think barely misses my top five because it's such a beautifully well written song uh, everything else here just kind of depresses me
0: I think I was thinking about this this morning And I I think it is a great album. And I compare it to, I think, all that you can't leave behind is U2's Yield uh, from Pearl Jam uh an album after yeah, you I... did it jeff's gonna go on now for another 40 minutes over
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> yield is great
0: um i love yield you know that if you heard the podcast previously, I, I i think yield's fantastic uh it was not the smash hit that all that you can't leave behind was but it was kind of a retrenchment after a little more experimental stuff from like no code um and, and in both ways uh, i think the bands respectively uh, get back to what they do really well while adding some of those things they've they've learned and also augmented to their sound over the over the past years. And it's a great mix. I think it's a great mix uh, on this album. I, I think there are two uh, Dead Bang classic U2 songs on this album. One of them is Stuck in a Moment You Can't Leave Behind, which Jeff mentioned this this conversation that bono wishes he would have had with michael hutchins of nxs before his his suicide it's a beautiful song uh you know melodically the the lyrics though are are harsh i mean it's it's this conversation he wanted to you know, basically smack him across the the face and say what what the heck are you doing um you just you know, it's just it's just a bad stretch it's gonna be okay get, get out of it come on um and Edge's guitar tone on this is just a perfect fit for the lyrics and uh Mullen's drums on the song also I think are very key. Gospel influence, chord progression, stuck at a moment's fantastic. always really loved uh kind of guess kind of a similar song later in the album uh in a little while, and I had forgotten a little about it before I went back and revisited the album that is a great great song it's got this kind of almost al green rhythm groove to it um bono's voice is completely one in, of his better vocal performances it's I mean. it's in tatters and he it he, 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 and he sings through it um kind of like a van Morrison-esque sound to it real really nicely textured. Uh, uh, melody and and some intensity to that delivery it's a fantastic vocal performance and that the, the edges guitar figure that doo do do do, da, do 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 love 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 it in a
3: little while our blow
0: for what it is. I like it just fine. I mean, the, the, the <laughs> lyrics are nothing. It is meant to be played in front of 30,000 fans at a stadium who can sing along and pump their fists. And, uh, you know, the, the Edge's guitar tone there is, is just big and meaty and fat. The same thing on Beautiful Day, which again, for as an anthem, is perfectly fine. I like it all right. Um, Walk On, I will say, Walk On I've never liked. To me, it's like, like it is the absolute definition of, like a U2 song uh, especially you know it's one of the few times that kind of echoey guitar comes back for the Joshua Tree era guitar it's kind of a song out of that era and so I've never been my absolute favorite U2 song even late I, I like New York uh, the-, the-, the very end maybe the last third doesn't hold up for the rest of the album but to me this is yeah this is, this is, is a great album and likely the last great album of U2's career
1: wrong, Stephen.
2: Um, yeah, I think it's obviously... I think it's their most... Um, kind of the most personal album. It's it's just where they said, we're done with the gimmicks. Like, you know, the rattle... You could argue like their gimmicks started rattle and hum, and then, of course, they go into TV with the costuming and the shows. And then, of course, it just blows up into giant lemons and discos and stuff like that. And this was kind of like... um This is, we're done with all of that. I think they just hit into their 40s or their late 30s and they were just kind of like, we can't do that anymore. Um, And so it was a test for them as just a band. No more gimmicks, no more real like, and I don't even mean gimmick bad. When I say gimmick, I mean like you could argue the vocal distortions on Zooti or on uh, Akin Baby was a gimmick. Um, And the distortion pedaling and all the guitars and stuff like that. And then the drum loops, those are gimmicks. Some work, some didn't. If the 90s for them was all kind of about commercialism and media saturation, this was about leaving the 90s behind, hence the title. Um, And I thought it was I thought it was a really good disc. Beautiful Day. I I think I love that song more than you guys do, because I love the message of it um it's just it's kind of like you don't need all of this crap you don't need you know it's kind of like the tyler durden of u2 songs <laughs> um, it's like you don't need all this crap in your life blow it up and you know the end lyrics you know what you don't have you don't need it right now what you don't know you can just feel it somehow like just those lyrics when you make that song um it goes kind of it goes overboard where it's like the world is all beautiful and light and love but it's a very personal song about just you know you 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 don't need all of this all you kind of really need is your feelings and your gut and your friends and your family and love and you know all of these material things that you accumulated you don't really need all of that stuff in life it's basically about someone who just packs their car and drives away which is incidentally basically when this came out is what i did i driven i basically packed my car up and moved from denver to los angeles and so that one kind of hit home a little bit for me Um, I think it's too overpolished. I think it's like kind of like a studio Springsteen album, if that makes sense. <sighs> Springsteen just kind of wants to throw every instrument on a song, and I think that <laughs> st- Stuck in a Moment is like that. I don't, I hate how the horns come in at the end of the song. And,
1: yes, I do too, which is kind of why I, I like the acoustic version more. It's like a
2: De Niro road trip movie at the end. you know, like <laughs> the soundtrack. Um, But again, the message I think is the most poignant of, on the album obviously with michael hutchins um i agree with scott on in a little while it's just one of their most subtle like wow where did this come and it's just bono's vocals that's the only thing that really carries that track um kite is actually one of my favorite soaring songs on that album um it's very simple it's a very simple message um but it does feel like it's it feels like it's over it's like back to back into the studio produced you two and like Jeff said it's a less experimental but i don't think that they were ever at their best when they were just kind of uh, experimenting and so to me this was can you two prove that they as a, just four guys playing music hmm. do they still have it? Can they still do this? Um, and I think that this album does prove that and I, I think that they had one, uh, one good album left in them which Jeff defends pop and uh, how to dismantle atomic
1: bomb is the one that I defend okay you know what the funny thing is though Stephen? I, I would have laughed at you prior to us recording this show I had never listened to any of the U2 albums past All That You Can't Leave Behind I'm kind of on your side about this album I'm kind of on your side this is a much better album than I expected it to be and by the way my number one memory of U2 when it comes to the year 2004 was that old uh, you know, internet 2.0 guy uh, Maddox uh, who I used to read, uh, he had this really hilarious essay on his webpage called 14 Worsts or the 12 or 11 Worst Songs of 2014. And all 11 of them were these songs <laughs> from How to Dispense an <laughs> Atomic Bomb. <laughs> just, just clowning on every last one of them. And I think that kind of formed my opinion of it without hearing every anything on this album other than Vertigo, which of course you heard because Uno Dos Tres Catorce on your iPod commercials on TV. He was yeah. unavoidable but man it, it, this album's better than its rep it is good
2: and the thing they were coming off of the other thing that helped all that you can't leave behind um which i mean this is where people i'm going to lose listeners is i mean 9-11 helped that album because it before it was kind of you 2 stripped back doing performances and then of course 9-11 happens and for some reason you know when they when they did the live show where they did the names dropping um mm-hmm. uh, Curtains, and of course, they did this at the Super Bowl. Yep. Suddenly, songs like "Walk On" took on a higher meaning. Suddenly-
1: Dude, I remember, like right after nine eleven, they'd be playing a song like "New York," and people would be asking, like, "Did you two write a song immediately about the tragedy?" Because it it sort of right. felt like it was written about the but thing. Also- There's lyrics in that song that like like resonate weirdly.
2: But also, uh, you know, kite is one. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, of course, and then it's funny you had like wild honey was put into uh, Cameron Crowe's Vanilla Sky, where mm-hmm. it kind of fit in. You're like, "Whoa, that that's a weird choice from him." Um, so the album took on a poignancy after that, and that's again where U2 becomes you know the band of the world. They they literally kind of recaptured being the biggest band in the world, and they were helped along with that. But then again, people uh, come off on how to dismantle atomic bomb, and I think atomic bomb is like the exact antithesis of All That You Can't Leave Behind. It's like it's Darker Brother, in a way. <laughs> uh, there's, there's an attitude and an edge on Atomic Bomb that's missing from All That You Can't Leave Behind. Vertigo, I'm, you can clown on Vertigo. <laughs> I'm not going to defend that. Again, though, it still has that kind of beat to it that, but this is kind of when they start getting into swinger party rock, you know, where, you know, you, you show up at the swinger party looking like the edge.
1: Yeah, the guitar!
2: Um, and so, but I will... Um, it has that edge and a little bit of an anger to it that I think uh that was missing from all that you can't leave behind. I think it has also easily bono's most personal lyrics um he's, yeah. he's going through the death of his father on this album. And his mom died when he was a teenager. I think his mom died at the funeral for her father. Imagine what that does to you at fourteen or fifteen um. But um, so it was just his dad and they had a little bit of a contentious relationship. His dad was trained in opera, but he was very much like what you're I don't want you going and doing this. And so you have the lyrics to sometimes you can't make it on your own. And this is it's just a heart wrenching opera where he's basically saying, you know, I'm Bono. I'm I am a world famous millionaire musician that everybody in the world sees and will stop on the street and they see me. But at the end of the day, I'm still just your kid. And you can't leave me in the world by myself because it terrifies the shit out of me. And it, you all—it's—and this is a forty-year-old guy writing this song. This isn't like you know a, a twenty-year-old. That the the end of the lyrics was um, a house doesn't make a home. Don't leave me here alone. is like his most gut-wrenching vocal performance, where it's his most personal. Oh, yeah. Step closer which is written for uh it was basically inspired by noel gallagher when bono he was hanging out with noel gallagher and bono said he kind of he, he kind of wondered if his father knew he was in heaven or you know he his, his father was always kind of skeptical about death and noel gallagher says well he one step closer to knowing and you know kind of in that thing and uh bono takes that and writes a whole song about it um original of the species to me is one of their better unknown songs um, just the way the kind of the chorus Ramps up and it starts out with that kind of Do, 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 do But I think turns into a really powerful song Some
3: things you shouldn't get too good at Like smiling, crying, and celebrity. Some people got way too much confidence, baby
2: Drug, I think it's the first song of the Bono era, in the sense of where the melody and the music is there, and then Bono's lyrics kind of take it and do something that shouldn't be done with it. Where Miracle Drug is basically about science and solving disease, <laughs> it's kind of like a, a Bill Nye Sunday Morning theme song, and it kind of like, yeah, but the music of Miracle Drug is awesome. Um, so, I mean, there's crumbs from your table on this, and then of course you get into the cliche tracks of All Because of You and City of Blinding Lights, which are the most reminiscent of what U2 is now. And of course, Obama. Listen,
1: and- I gotta I gotta tell you, I kinda like City of Blinding Lights. Oh, no, it's a good it's a good for it's, it's a- it, you know what I don't care about you know you know you know crap bono the lyrics, but the music on that is
3: really beautiful. Good,
2: the the City of Blind Lights is one of those good anthem arena shows um, but then you also have like "Love and Peace or Else," which is that one of the- is terrible. <laughs> no, but you have to hear it live, Jeff. When I say that there are songs that YouTube plays live that aren't that good, this is "Love and Peace or Else" is one of those where it's patronizing, it's over the top, it's it's bullet the blue sky. But when you hear it live, and you know there's a scene where like Bono's hitting this giant like Japanese drum <laughs> with these giant things, and you're like, okay, that's performance.
1: You uh, know what? I don't believe you. I, I just, I just, okay. I refuse to believe you.
2: Well, i've seen them live and you haven't so
1: yeah that is that is true but i still think that you tell lies chances
2: because they're old and they're in wheelchairs now and (laughs) you know you're not gonna be able to see it um but yeah it's one of it's one of his most personal albums where again if you have octane baby working through the edges darkness there's a lot of kind of bono coming to reconcile with you know oh well every you know my family's gone from me now so i do defend this album a little bit it's not It's not perfect. I think Bono had a quote about it where he said, it's one of these albums where every song on it is good, but the album itself is not. Well, he doesn't say it's not good. It's just not perfect. Um, So, yeah, this is the one that I defend a little bit more, but I do think that this is probably their last good album, although No Line on the Horizon... There's sparks that go out on that album.
1: Um, All right. All right. All right. So here we are, Stephen. We're going to wrap up the last uh, 10 years of U2. Three albums. Uh, in five minutes, yeah, okay. because I think that's how we all feel about these things. Those last three albums, of course, are No Line on the Horizon, Songs of Innocence. Songs of Innocence, infamously, was the song that was downloaded onto everybody's iPhone <laughs> against their will, and yeah, it yeah. sort of made you two a pariah. I, it's, I still it's think like that's people weird. wouldn't even have. Kid-
2: I, 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 you still say think
0: it, I still think that's weird though like no don't give me free YouTube music whatever you do yeah, exactly, Please, exactly. take it, it away just like people
1: wanted an like, excuse what? to bitch you know that's exactly what it is right but I think so what,
0: like i think what also happened
2: with that is it was kind of where YouTube. this is where they just entered the, the kind of the dad rock phase and it was so perfect for tim cook and YouTube. like tim cook is yeah. that bad U2 fan. Wondering, why is everybody mad? I love this band.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, U2, doesn't everybody love U2? Isn't U2 like what the hip, what the kids love these
2: That's right, exactly <laughs> what it is. And then it's U2 is the band that thought everyone would love it if they were the ones on the iPhone. <laughs> right. and both of those things were just completely kind of wrong. Although... The album itself, it, it's, there's some interesting things on it. I think Joy, Remot- ah,
1: there's nothing, there's nothing interesting. Listen, Remot- th- th- let me finish my thought, which is that there are three albums we got to deal with here. No Line on the Horizons, 2009, Songs of Innocence, 2014, and the most recent one, Songs of Experience, which, holy Christ, I don't even know what I want to say about that. I have one thought about these entire three albums combined, which is that the first three songs on No Line on the Horizon, Um, I was surprised when I went back and I listened to this for the first time. Actually pretty good. I really love that title track. That title track is some really engaging sort of, a little different, a little, a little daring. For a second, I thought, "Oh, are, is you two trying to do something new again?" And then, no, they go in the magnificent, and it's the same old crap. But magnificent actually is a pretty decent song too. But the one I think, and I know, I know, Stephen agrees with me on this, is "Moment of Surrender." Is kind of like, ironically enough, for a song titled "Moment of Surrender." That's the moment where Bono kind of gives up the ghost lyrically. That's his last vocal triumph in any of these albums, in my opinion. That's the last moment where I feel like the melody, the lyrics, and the music all came together in the right place.
2: I describe that as Luke at the end of Last Jedi. Like,
1: yeah, basically. Exactly. That is, that
2: is Bono's evaporate, giving all he's got left um vocally – um, the way he, the way it opens, and it's just hit, and you're like, "Wow, okay." Um, but even then, throughout the song, he kind of loses steam, and he then, yeah, he he floats, he looks at the sun, and floats away. And it's like I said, it's like Luke Skywalker at the end of Last Jedi. He just he gave all of he had, and that was it.
3: Okay.
1: tell you how bad the second half of this album is (laughs) get on your boots your sexy boots oh my god i want to i want to literally drive a spike into my head with that song horrible Uh, the fez being i mean there's already one bad song called the fez by stealing dan now we have another one by you two uh just such bad music and then again i find songs of innocence and then songs of experience to be almost irredeemable
2: yeah, I, I look at it and I say the, the interesting thing about No Line Horizon is there's about five tracks that are directly trying to mimic what they were doing earlier in their career. Somebody I think could be on Twitter. Is, uh, U2's current career is an experiment in how many times can Bono write the same song and nobody notices. <laughs> um, which is like I say, this is the era of where every song is light, like love, love. But No Line on the Horizon, the track feels like Octoon Baby. It feels like Lady with the Spinning Head. I'll Go Crazy is All That You Can't Leave Behind. Moment of Surrender is Rattle and Hum. Get on Your Boots is Atomic Bomb.
1: Yeah, actually, I, I, would, I would say that, that No Line on the Horizon sounds more to me like a Zoropa track. No, that's, like that's like Europa, which is close to iPhone Baby.
2: To that up against Lady with the spinning head, they're almost identical.
1: Yeah,
2: since yeah. um, you have Iris on there, which is almost a direct copy of Ultraviolet. I mean, even the ty- Iris parenthesis, hold me close, Ultraviolet light my way, um, and they are almost identical in structure and beats and the sound and the lyrics. Um, I do like every Breaking mm. Wave. I think that that was kind of a good return. Um, to, to where they are but basically i'm to, you know to kind of me wrap it up it this is what i call the sh- bono era where is the band still feels there musically and almost to a point where edge is getting better um with some of those riffs like you said no line on the horizon is really just one of those you know a full-blown at you in your face and you're like wow okay they, they have energy still um but i'm i'm with you on the rest of that stuff but it's like again, you just have Bono who's creatively spent the songs. Love is all we have left. You're the best thing about me. Love is bigger than anything in its way. Ordinary love, summer of love. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> you think love is going to, you know, cure, cure the world's ills. We understand all of that, but it is kind of, um, I think it also goes back to their, their live show it's just not the same band because bono just can't move anymore it's just the, mm. the guys are standing there and so i i do think
0: they're spent um but they've they've surprised people before and there we are we come to the end of the uh line for U2's output to date and that means it's time for us to head to the portion of the show where all three of your your fine hosts give you two albums i almost said three I mean, i've done this 50 times Two albums that you should own and five songs from you two that you absolutely have to hear. Our guest, as always goes first, Stephen Miller has the floor.
2: Uh, my two albums are um, obviously "Octune Baby is the one that's dark, relevant, timeless. Give to your teenager after their first breakup and tell them to write down what they're feeling. Uh, Boy would be my second one, just loud, youthful, unbridled. Like I, I think how yeah, you summed it up, it's where if you wanted an unserious U2 that wasn't out there trying to save the world from everything, um, this would be the album. It's just again, it's a good time capsule for the '80s about what the '80s would sound like. Again, put you know, just put it in a thing, bury it, put it in a museum, and say um, that this, this is uh, this was one of the best albums of the '80s. Also, uh, my five key songs: Out of Control, perfect melting pot of all of their earlier stuff. If you wanted to just combine all of that stuff from Boy and war into one sound and one track, um, I'd put, I'd say, out of control. And like I said, it just still bangs. It's a roller coaster without a safety bar. Uh, bad, um, again, a song that kind of launched them from being kind of post-punk club kids to a more mature, emotional, anthemic songwriters. And to me, that was the first one where they kind of really do open themselves up personally and spiritually. Um, running to stand still, not a surprise. Um, any kid that wants to pick up a guitar and learn to play or sing, Start with this one. Um, just don't get into the heroin. <laughs> don't get into <laughs> heroin while you're trying to do those things. The heroin is bad. Um, the other one I mentioned is so cruel to me. The closest U2 has come to just like a pure symphony it's just a band firing on all cylinders, where just nothing is forced. The music's just arriving. It just comes in, stays, and then exits. Uh, maybe not their. I wouldn't say their best and most recognizable track from Octune Baby*, but I think it's probably their most one complete musically. And then my fifth one is Ground Beneath Her Feet. It's, I think, U2's best kind of B-side unknown song. And it's from the Million Dollar Hotel film, which Bono wrote and also learned that he's not as good at film as he is at electronic music either. Um, it's almost word for word written by Salman Rushdie from his novel, um, which of course, Bono's a huge thing for Salman Rushdie, it was released pre All That You Can't Leave Behind um, and was a window to me into what U2 actually could have been after Octune Baby. Um, as opposed to trying to correct course, I think it's the perfect emergence of what came post Octune Baby and then was leading into with All That You Can't Leave Behind, and I think it's a good window into the missed opportunity they could have had with Zepropa and Pop um, when they could have gone more ethereal and more moody, um, as opposed to going and kind of dancing
3: electronic. Yeah cool. cool.
0: Those are my five. Uh, all right. For my two albums, um, I think they've got to be War, uh, the, th- the third album um, from U2. That's just a really solid one, start to finish. And I think the first time that they uh, they really understand the capabilities they have as a band. And then Octung uh, Baby from 1991, start to finish, a fantastic uh Track or fantastic track, start to finish. On um, the individual songs, I'll go back to the first album for an early one on this list. I think "Stories for Boys" is uh, again by far the best song on Boy, and really a fantastic one, even uh, considering the length of their career. Let's go to um, let's go to Rattle and Hum, and I-, I would say "All I Want Is You" is one that you've got to hear. Two from Octoon, Baby, "Until the End of the World." I think one of the most complete performances by you two on any single song acrobat later on in the album is just fantastic and in the uh, the fifth slot from all that you can't leave behind uh despite the horns that uh that steven is not a big fan of and, and jeff i think stuck at a moment is is on that list as well those are my five jeff to you it's actually a pretty
1: difficult choice for the top two albums because they had so many albums that were all important yet in different ways. But, but I'm going to go with Boy, their debut, because <clears throat> kind of along the same lines that Stephen did. Like this is this is post punk. This is you know this up there with i say Echo and the Bunnyman's Heaven up here and um, Unknown Pleasures by uh, Joy Division, Faith by The Cure. There are four albums that, if you want to explain what that weird, echoey, dreamy, drifty sound of, you know, United Kingdom era post punk was, they're, they're, those are the ones you want to go with. And then, of course, the other one was, I, you know, which one do you pick? I was trying to come up with a lot of hot takes. I, I, but I have to admit, ultimately, it's going to be Octung Baby for all the reasons we've already talked about. It's Octong Baby. There are no bad songs. It's their best album in any objective sense of the word. It's their best album. So, the five songs that I was going to pick. Um, well, again, this is also really hard because this band had a really long career. And even well into their dotage, they still managed to put out the occasional banger of a track. First one I'll go with is The Electrico uh, from Boy. Uh, talked about that already, how much I love it. I think that was the moment their their promise really first came into focus. Second one would be a sort of homecoming from Unforgettable Fire. I think this is the best song in U2's career, unless we're talking about Lemon, which couldn't be further removed from a sort of homecoming, and a completely different form of U2, and a completely different band, and a completely different sound. Uh, Lemon is from Zeropa, it's Bono as dance pop, dark, Mephisto, Mephisto fly, Maven, Uh, maybe it isn't classic U2, but that's exactly why I like it, because I like the fact that they were still willing to step out and take chances um, fourth song I would mention would be I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For uh, off of the Joshua Tree yeah it's a cliche but you know what sometimes these things become cliches because they're so well loved and they're so beaten into the ground that you know they're actually they're, 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 their quality has been objectively proven I think it's a beautiful song I think it's a beautiful spiritual uh, and then the last one I would pr- pick is The Fly off of Ah Baby. As I said, it was the bravest song on that album. It was the greatest song to release as the first single to just show the world, yeah, we're different now, and we are un- unapologetic about it. That cathartic guitar solo at the end of the song always gets me every single time. And again, host prerogative, I'm going to do a sixth. I'm going to say <laughs> that the sixth song, last song, is All I Want Is You, off of Rattle & Hum. If Rattle & Hum had had this song and just a bunch of people farting for 75 minutes, I would have tolerated it as a double album. Because I think All I Want Is You is as beautiful as anything U2 ever did. A simple love song that earns every second of its running time one of their masterpieces. And one of those songs that, you know, even if you think you hate U2, you listen to the song and I don't care how hard your heart is, it will soften as you listen to that and you'll be like... Okay, yeah. I really love this.
3: You, you want your love to work out right to the last-
2: get a sixth song. Uh, It's also All I Want Is You, just so we're
0: all (laughs) ready. It's on all three lists. It must be good. Uh, There you go. The Political Beats look at you too. I think our guest Stephen Miller has contributed to National Review Online, Fox News, and the New York Post working on projects right now, so you know, stay tuned for announcements. Find him on Twitter at Red Steez. Stephen, thank you for joining us once again on Political Beats. Yeah, this is great. I kind of relished in... um, being
2: the fun music snob who gets to do the the, the two least supposedly cool bands It was the role you were born to play <laughs> yes. A yes. Fun, honest troll, let's just say that but no, I genuinely love the band and I genuinely love what you guys do and I genuinely appreciate you having me back
0: uh, Jeff, my co-host, Jeff Blair at Esoteric CD on Twitter Jeff, we uh, I like the, we're, if we're, you know inside baseball here we're, we're just beginning uh, 50 episodes into Plan Ahead like more than a show in advance. I like this. We already know, the two of us know, the next band we're doing. I like this.
1: Next, next, next time we appear on Political Beats, you and I may well have miles and miles of style, so much style, in fact, that it's wasted. That's all I'm going to say.
0: At esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm be on Twitter at... Scott Bertram. Reminder, please subscribe to our feed for new episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, it's delivered right to you, or go to nationalreview.com and click on podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.